Hey everybody, and welcome to Full Marks. My name is Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about a day at the races. Yes, we are. Yeah, thank agreement. You f- We've thank agreed. You f- we agree with that. Yep. Thanks for following the schedule <laughs> okay, of our shows. Okay, sure. All right, no if problem. If you throw in room service at me, I would have been at a loss. Mm-hmm. No, no I, I watched a Laurel and Hardy movie by mistake. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> you doodle. Uh, we've introduced our names. Uh, if you're listening to this for the very first time, that's odd that you would start here. Maybe this is your favorite Marx Brothers movie and you want to hear about that. But so maybe that isn't weird at all. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you know the premise uh, behind the show. Uh, David is a uh, Marx Brothers fan, has seen all the movies, and enjoys yes. doing an insane amount of research. Really, really goes over things with the finest of toothed combs. Well, you could say that, but then our listeners always find little curveballs to throw at me, or little in- interesting little facts and things. So, well, there's always some hairs that are in. missed by that fine tooth comb. <laughs> that's true. And some end up in the sink. I don't know what that—that's uh, a metaphor for. Anyway, I—I uh, uh, I work as a comedian. I write for uh, Mad Magazine and do New Yorker cartoons with my wife <clears> Pia. Uh, I am a uh, casual fan of the Marx Brothers, but I have not seen all the movies. Uh, this is one I have seen uh, before, but I had forgotten most of. You and I, uh, this is the only Marx Brothers movie I think we, we have seen together previously. That's right. And we saw it uh, in a theater. Was it at a film festival? I don't think it was a film festival. We saw it at the Ridge Theater, so it would have been a double bill Okay. that night. But the, what we saw was a terrible print because it was missing large chunks of dialogue. So it was all spliced together with with missing missing words. How do you think it went over that night? I'm trying to remember. Oh, I was frustrated because I was looking forward to seeing it with you because I really wanted yeah. you to see a Marx Brothers film. And then we got this sort of uh, I don't know, I, censored. <laughs> it wasn't even censored. It was just it was just uh, an old copy that I guess Chopped had been up. had been yeah been through the mill. Yeah, uh, edited without uh, any uh, sense of style or pace <laughs> or just randomly yeah. chopped. I remember what words meant. Yep. Words not good made in yeah, badness. So, yeah, that was a thing. But uh, the version uh, we watched uh, this time around was uh, on DVD. Uh, right. It seemed to have all the scenes. You will tell me later if anything was cut, uh, as as you do. But again, the premise is uh, Dave is the more hardcore fan. I'm more casual fan. I am uh, watching all these movies with David separately. We're not watching them at the same time. Uh, in order. And uh, we're reporting back to you on details of the Marx Brothers' life and then the film itself. So let us begin now. It's like we're African explorers. It is. Did someone call me Shinora? Hey, that's uh, the theme song to the show as well. <laughs> Wanted to bring it up. Good. Uh, yeah. So this is a, this is a an interesting point I think in in the Marx Brothers' career because there's a they're at they're at the highest success at this point. Mm-hmm. Night of the Opera is the their biggest film they've ever done. Uh, it's making lots of money, and it's also their worst time in their career. Why is that? Well, we'll talk about it. Um, but yeah, like it starts off great, and then probably their career was dealt a death blow and it, it continued yeah there's a lot more movies for something that had a death blow but it never it never would have this they never would be the same again uh all i know is like experience. whenever i've seen groucho marx interviewed and he's talked about his favorite movies uh it's night at the opera and day of the races those are the two that he says you know were the best yes himself so th- that is his yeah. point he, of view he's repeated that mm-hmm, on various talk mm-hmm. shows and he did come around to duck soup later in 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 his career um but yes because of the because of the politics surrounding especially making duck soup he he uh i think they all had kind of like a bit of a negative view of those films and also they kind of bought into the idea that they were failures hmm. you know that the movies weren't successes which is not true uh whereas night of the opera they worked with Thalberg, someone they really liked 
they worked in, a, in MGM, which was the classiest place in the world to, in terms of Hollywood to work, you know, that, and, and MGM had a really good, um, a pretty good uh, open policy. They had a commissary that everyone could eat at. Uh, and so you, actors and, and crew worked, uh, ate together. At least I assume the crew ate together there. Maybe the, maybe the sort of blue collar workers didn't work there, but the more white collar workers, so cinematographers and writers and directors okay. and things could eat in the commissary. I'm not certain if they let in just every Tom, Dick and Harry, but, but yeah, so you could have. That's, a, that's the same thing now with a lot of uh, studios I've found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I say that having visited a couple of different lots. Yeah. But I remember like last time I was on the Fox lot uh, visiting a friend of mine and we ate at the commissary. And yeah, it was like a real big mix of people mm-hmm. like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, that's that. And who's there? And uh, oh, these are just people. And it was a, yeah. And that was a, and that was a change that Thalberg brought in uh, when he started working at MGM. He changed this, how, how things are done to make it more of an, an open and welcoming place for everyone. So there wasn't a sense of the stars are here and you guys are sure. all down here. He wanted to have a mix of people. And, you know, so and I guess the idea was that the people would mingle and there would be some sort of cross communication. But as things happen, there's always hierarchies in, in any kind of culture. So Groucho, for instance, was, you know, would be would people would complain about Groucho eating with the writers and not eating with the actors, you know, and so that. You know, so he was eating with those other people hmm. in a way. So okay. there was that, you know, it's just a natural part of how humans want to be. So, you know, everyone will eat together, but we'll eat over here and you guys eat over there. We'll yeah. all eat together. I feel like the writers would get the jokes. Yeah, it'd be more fun. Yep. I would rather eat with writers. It's, but anyway, depends how good looking the actress was. Also, they're hungrier. Like the actors can't actually eat, right? <laughs> the actors Starlets can't. can't have more than a salad. So what That's fun is true. that? That's true. So what's interesting for Irving Thalberg was what a what a predicament he was in after the after the wrap of a night of the opera why it was a big success he knew it was going to be it wasn't released yet and he knew it was going to be a a a big film maybe he didn't know how big but he knew it was a success but what he had to think to himself was okay i've made this almost perfect marx brother film how do i what do i do next how do i do i top this is it a continuation is it what is it what do we do and so it was interesting like and you read like varieties of that time period and you read interviews with people at that time period. My question to myself was always, did anyone tell the truth to Variety? Or did they just tell lies all the time? Like, just always flack. Is that what, is that what all that Variety got? You know, cause there was like a, a, an interview with Thorberg at that time period. Yeah. And he's talking about the fact that he's quoted saying this. He's quoted saying that he didn't think the Marxists required a long time between movies. Like he, you know, they, when they were with Paramount, they wanted a year between films. They didn't want to be rushing through sure. stuff. They wanted to have time to develop it and, and rest and then start another film, which is perfectly reasonable. But he didn't think that was that he needed to do that. And so in this interview, he states that he's got two scripts on the go. One is being written by George S. Kaufman, George Seaton, and Robert Parash, who had all had a hand in the script for A Night of the Opera. And the other was being written by Harry Ruby and Burt Kalmar, who had also had a hand in writing A Night of the Opera. And, of course, had written on lots of Marx Brothers films, all the way from doing music from Animal Crackers, working on um, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup. Uh, and so the plan was to produce both of them in the summer, so then the Marx Brothers could, ha- Marx Brothers could have the winter off. Mm-hmm. And there was some discussion that they were going to be uh, doing, putting on a production on Broadway during, that, during the winter. So is this true? Nothing that you... Nothing... In the history of, of A Day of the Races shows any sign of this being true. So it's weird to me that mm. this is quoted as, as a thing. Um, Thalberg had, of course, turned to, to Kaufman. That was the first person he turned to because that 
see, he seemed to be the the magic that everyone wanted to to have in, in this. You know, he wrote the coconuts, he wrote animal crackers, which I don't necessarily think are the best Marx Brothers films, but I think they are definitely a template to what the Marx Brothers were, or and how you how you wrote the Marx Brothers, if you know what I mean. And so I think he had a really interesting understanding of how you write to the Marx Brothers, because he really when he wrote the coconuts, there was no there was no thing like it. Like, it wasn't like I'll Say She Is. It wasn't like On the Mezzanine. It wasn't like uh, uh, Mr. Green's, um, I don't want to call it party, but it's not what it is. Mr. Green's, ah, anyway, it's ah. a word in my, it's escaping my mind. Sorry, sure. everyone. But it wasn't, those things were, those things were reviews, you know, so they didn't have like a, they had a very loose overarching story, but very loose. And then in between that, you had different comedians, but then the Marx Brothers doing comedy bits. You had dancers, you had singers, you had chorus lines, you had all these things that happened in those in those shows. And Kaufman took that format, but he tweaked it in a way that made a, a solid story that the Marx Brothers could interact within and also have music and blah, 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 and all that kind of other stuff that was de- demanded of audiences at that time period. If you went to see a comedy show, you wanted your music, you wanted your dancing. Right. Those things still kind of hanging over, right? And then when he did the, when he, when those were cut down into movies, not by Kaufman, but by Riskind, who also worked on, um, The Night of the Opera, you know, they brought in this understanding of how to make the Marx Brothers work in a movie format as well. How to, what to take out, what to keep, how to make it appealing, you know. And so that template for the Marx Brothers was set and they just followed it. it didn't matter what movie it was. I mean, they might be more extreme, like Duck Soup, let's say. Right. Or pull it back a lot for, for A Night of the Opera. But the template's there. Okay. And so, you know, he's turning to Kaufman again. And now Kaufman, who barely wanted to do A Night of the Opera, well, it was only his wife, who apparently wanted to go to California, who convinced him to, to do it. Um, he, he didn't have any interest in it. And it was the same in, again when, when, uh, Thalberg came back to him and said, well, let's think about doing a new movie. Um, Kaufman's response was, let's not. Let's not think about doing a new movie. I don't, you know, that's not what I want. I'm working on this. He's working, he was working on a, I believe he was working on an adaptation of, of Mice and Men at that time. Okay. And so, you know, he had his own thing. He had his own irons in the fire. He didn't want to, you know, he was a very successful Broadway playwright. And he was a, and a very successful New Yorker, you know, and someone who loved New York and didn't want to live in California. He had no interest in, unlike a lot of people who left New York and went to California to become screenwriters, he went out there, worked on a film, and then he came back to New York. And that was perfectly fine for him. So he wasn't that keen so what he did do is he said to he said to Thalberg, he said, well, you have a guy working for you already in George Oppenheimer who worked on Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. So you have someone who has experience writing for the Marx Brothers. Why not give him the assignment and let him do the treatments and let him see what he can come up with? So that's what Thalberg did. So Thalberg turned to Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer is an interesting guy because Oppenheimer, he was a graduate of Williams College, which is a fancy college. He graduated from Harvard. He formed his own publishing company, the Viking Press, which I don't know if it's still around, but it was. Oh, yeah, it was it, very popular. It's yeah. a very popular press, yeah. He had co-founded it with another guy and then decided he wasn't as interested in publishing as he was in writing, and he turned his hand to screenwriting. And he became basically a polisher and script doctor. He worked. He first started working with Goldwyn on a film, and then he got hired by MGM, and basically that was what he did there. He just stepped in, took over projects, and you know worked, worked on the scripts. So... Um, Thalberg put Oppenheimer to work, gave him another writer to work with, who apparently was not very helpful. He was a old silent film writer who didn't really have much of a sense of humor, but could give you a new, could enumerate facts all day long if that's what you wanted. So they didn't come up with anything great. 
In fact, after reading the treatments produced by Oppenheimer, uh, Groucho decided to call back in Robert Parash and George Seaton, who had worked, who had done the original treatments for A Night of the Opera, to see what they could come up with. Now they had left MGM. They were, had gone down market. They were at Republic Pictures, which was kind of a B movie. Uh, why after the success of the, the the last film why did they go Yeah, there? it's interesting, isn't it? But uh, I guess they couldn't really get a hand a handle in in MGM. You know, it was a big place. Was it just comedy wasn't respected? I don't know if it was comedy wasn't respected. I don't think they saw themselves as comedians. Mm-hmm. Neither of them had a career in comedy outside of writing marks for their films. Well, um, what more do you need? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I understand. they didn't carry on. They didn't <laughs> yeah. carry on writing in a comedy vein. Um Proch, who uh fought in World War II, was fought actually fought, fought in the Battle of the Bulge and the Ardennes and stuff like that. Um, he became, uh, he started writing, like, he did a lot of war movies and westerns and stuff like that after he returned from from his service. And he um, wrote one of my favorite war films, actually, which is called um, Battleground. It's this movie with Van, uh, I think it starts Van Heflin, and, or maybe Van Johnson. Van Johnson. <laughs> I'm say Van Johnson, yeah. And he, and it's just basically, it's just a, a kind of a almost portmanteau collection of, Related but sort of unrelated incidents of this infantryman battling across France. And it's a really interesting film. It's a very good movie. And he actually won an Oscar for it. Oh, good. Um, and then Seton, George Seton, uh, he, he went on to write, uh, and produce, or, and direct a lot of films as well. He did A Miracle on 34th Street, would be probably one of his most famous films. And a film that you love, I think you love this movie, Airport. Oh, okay. Another film there that he did. Uh, which was a very popular movie in its day, mm-hmm. but no one would call it a, a comedy, at least not intentionally, I don't think. <laughs> so I don't know if, you know, so they may have had an of the opera under their belt, but maybe that's not what they wanted to be writing. And so they didn't want to be pigeonholed into working on whoever, yeah. you know, Eddie, Eddie Cantor movies, maybe the kid from Spain. Does it again mention that movie one more time? <laughs> uh, or working for Wheeler and Woolsey or whoever. Maybe they wanted to do other things. So they kind of fell to writing Westerns. And that's what Republic Pictures did. That's where John Wayne got his start. Sure. So they went down to Republic Pictures and started working there, probably not making as much money as they would have been making at MGM. But at least, you know, coming out with a lot of Westerns from that place, yeah. you know. And I'm going to bet, uh, again, this is just me as a comedy writer going like, mm-hmm. that seems like it'd be less work writing a Western than writing a comedy for the Marx sure. Brothers. It has to be so dense with jokes yeah. and, and just burning through so many jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You can be a snob. That's fine. Yeah, I can. <laughs> so the horse, the horse runs and you shoot from the horse. Yeah, good. <laughs> that's it. That's good. Sounds good. You're right. They meet in the middle of the street. There's even a limited amount shoot, of plot. Shoot each other. I can tell you There's one. a lot of quiet men. I can tell you one more. Men. I can tell you one more interesting thing about Seton. All right. Is that he and played, then tell me two uninteresting things about it. He played. <laughs> he was. He uh, was the first person to play the Lone Ranger on the radio. Oh, nice. And he came up. He claims he came up with the Hi-Yo Silver oh. cry because he didn't know how to whistle. <laughs> but he's supposed to whistle for silver, but he didn't know how, so he came up with this cry. Hi, oh, to... silver away. Yeah. I'll get on him. So there you go. Clayton Moore, yo, I'm a dollar. <laughs> so... Clayton Moore was the Lone Ranger, right? Is that reference correct? Yes, that's right. Thank you very much. All right, good. <laughs> so, of course, um, they were brought over to, to MGM, and one of the first things they got to do was to see A Night of the Opera as a movie. And they were just so intimidated with the idea of, we have to, <laughs> we have to like, re, you know, like top this, or at least yeah. equal this. Oh boy. So, so they're working with that, but they're also working with the fact that they've got, um, Thalberg's theories of movie making. So we've got the clothesline concept we talked about last time. And then the football game concept. So the idea in which continuity, which is the clothesline concept, and a rising storyline must be followed always. You cannot have a scene that has no meaning in a, in a Thalberg film. Okay. Each scene has to forward the plot. So you can't just have a moment of silliness. 
It has to always be going forward. And you also have to have your moment of defeat. Yeah. You have to have your park bench moment. Yeah. Where you get pushed onto the grass and then told you can't sit on the grass. And then you have your rise from there to victory. This is pretty standard for a lot of producers. They all have mm-hmm. their, like, uh, Dan Harmon has uh, his story wheel. That's right, his circle you know, theory. Everyone's, yeah, got, right. everyone's got their, you know, and there's so many, you know, you just, uh, the, who, who wrote story? Who, who wrote that, uh, that book? The, yeah, adaptation, uh, mm, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I forget, I forget the version, but yeah, they all have their, and at this point, this happens. This is where the character, uh, overcomes this, or, yeah. or, you know, a more simple version is, uh, put your hero in a tree and then have people throw rocks at him <laughs> and now have them get down from the tree and yeah. they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's most simple form. That's, well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's, that is a good dramatic story. Um, I'm okay with a bunch, a bit of nonsense. Even if it's like, well, what does this add? Uh, what's it take away? <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah, you know what? Not everything in your life is linear. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though it is linear, not everything works as a linear story. And maybe sometimes a little thing off to the side might make things a little more realistic. But that's just me. I didn't make. Uh, I didn't make this movie. I didn't make a day at the races. So what do I know? What do you know? Yep, that's a question I ask all the time. Hmm. Uh, so Thalberg also brought in. <laughs> no, I like that uh, that I distracted from your linear storytelling of the events with that nonsense. In doing so, proving my point. <laughs> what did it, what did we gain? Thalberg or what did we lose? Thalberg also brought five in five minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I have an edit. I can edit this out. Thalberg also brought in uh, Will Johnstone, who had been there at the beginning of of their Hollywood film career. He'd worked on Monkey Business and on Horse Feathers. And I think he was basically brought in to, to work up Mar- Harpo business because he, he was a cartoonist and that seemed to be his natural, okay. uh, his natural place that he kind of fell into in, in the writing scheme of things was working, working for Harpo. Uh, and then he also brought in this guy named Kerry Wilson, who initially I was thinking, well, this is a weird choice because Kerry Wilson was a writer, a screenwriter known for his work on Fallberg's like prestige productions. Like he'd worked, for instance, on Ben Hur, the 1925 Ben Hur, and he worked on, on, uh, the 1935 you were only worked every 10 years. No, you also worked <laughs> but I did your example. He also worked on the 1935 Mutiny on the Mountain. So he did like these big movies. Okay. But what does that have to do with the Marx Brothers? You think to yourself. But then I thought, well, because they want a prestige production. Sure. They don't just want a Marx Brothers film. They want to make this as big as possible. So they want to bring in someone who will bring a sense of, of, of the epic. I don't know if that's a great approach to the Marx Brothers, but that's fine. So by the time a night of the opera had been released, kind of at near the end of the year, uh, they had produced a 15-page treatment for the next film. So that's how quickly things were following on. Like, Thalberg was wasting no time getting started on this next thing. Mostly because I probably, he probably didn't waste any time at all. You know, he probably just had all kinds of stories cooking away as he was as every day. In this treatment, Groucho is Cyrus P. Turntable, which is a terrible name, mm-hmm. by the way. One of the... It takes a particular... There's just, You have to find that right little bit of... of name for him that makes it work yeah it me. feels like what you got to do is you got to write like a hundred names and then mm. uh, go through them and go like pick out 10 yeah pick out five pick out one and then you mm-hmm. got it yeah so he's basically a quack working at the Quackenbush medical building mm-hmm. a sort of down mark down market medical establishment oh and i forgot to mention that Thalberg also told seaton and and uh Perosh that um you know feel free to wait whatever you want except i want it to have a medical i want it to be like in a sanitarium and I want there to be some fun poked at the medical profession. Sure. So that was their their. Yeah, it's an odd mix of two concepts, like mm. racehorses and sanitariums. It wasn't you called know, a day at the races yet. I understood, but okay. both both element. You know, it's just like uh, yeah, you know how they all those go together: sanitariums and racehorses. <laughs> okay. So 
Uh, Alan Jones is his friend. <laughs> Alan Jones is returning. Yeah. And we, uh, the, one, the joke is Groucho once saved his life by not treating him. Uh, now, Alan Jones is in love with Millicent Rittenhouse, the daughter of Mrs. Rittenhouse, which would be the Margaret Dumont character. Sure. Millicent is a hypochondriac. Uh, and so, and worth so much money that rival doctors are vying for her business. It's a great idea. So there's Turntable. Yeah. And Dr. Walzer. And both, he's a, he's a German doctor. Kind of a parody on the sort of influx of German doctors who are coming to the States this time with kind of bringing in Freud and Jung and stuff like that. And a funny voice. And it's a funny it's voice. It's a funny yeah. voice. You can yeah. get a funny beard. Everything's great. So the idea of the movie was to open in a ballroom and there'd be the Blue Down New playing and there would be all these doctors, sort of like the co- you know comic strip idea of what a doctor would look like, the same way that Horse Feathers had the comic strip college professors. Uh, and they would be waltzing together. Uh, and I don't know why. But that's how the movie opens. Okay. Um so, although the doctors are all searching for a universal cure, Groucho is actually searching for a new disease to boost business. That's <laughs> his, right. his goal. Chico and Harpo play process servers who manage to get to Groucho Ooh. by telling him that Harpo is sick, uh, which is a cue for a comedy examination scene. Uh, Groucho and, the Groucho and Chico scene was to take place at a train station where Groucho is heading to Maine. And I'm not sure why. It doesn't really explain in the treatment why they're going to Maine. Uh, he pulls out a timetable and through some arithmetic proves that... Uh, Chico and Harpo are already in Maine while he is still in New York. <laughs> okay. So this is sort of a double talk thing. All right. And after some business on the train ride, the three of them meet again in Maine where there is an examination scene at Mrs. Rittenhouse. I thought they must be chasing after Mrs. Rittenhouse. She must have left the medical establishment okay, all right. where Grocho was employed. And now he's following after, he's chasing the money. He's following, he's following them. Follow the money, as they say. Isn't that what they say? Mm-hmm. So then we have an examination scene of uh, Mrs. Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse, where the doctor's rivalry almost kills the patient. The doctor then removes the Rittenhouses to his tranquil colonial village, where they are then rescued by the Marx Brothers and Ellen Jones with the help of, of quote-unquote, wild Indians. I don't exactly know what's going to happen there. So Millicent is cured by love and excitement. Groucho marries Mrs. Rittenhouse. And Chico and Harpo, the process servers, serve him a bill for $2.50. And that's the end of the film. So it took a while for them to see Thalberg, but when they got to see him, get his reaction, they were disappointed. He did, however, approve of four things in their treatment. So okay. These are four things he wanted to see. The colonial village. Millicent Rittenhouse being a hypochondriac. Margaret Dumont's examination scene. Yes. And the name Quackenbush. The next treatment was called Peace and Quiet, this time by Oppenheimer, Seton, and Prosh without Will Johnston. Grotra becomes Dr. Quackenbush. Chico becomes a law student who supports himself by playing in a bar. Harpo is a tree surgeon who spends his days sitting in trees spying on pretty girls. Yeah, okay. Grocho, Chico, and Harpo meet when Harpo and Chico saw through a tree branch they're sitting on, causing them to fall on Grocho. He threatens to sue, and Chico agrees, agrees to act as his lawyer. <laughs> and then they have a, you know, a Chico and Harpo, or sorry, Grocho and Chico double talk scene. Chico wants to find a doctor who will tell Mrs. Rittenhouse that Millicent isn't sick. So I'm going to assume there's still Ellen Jones in this, that okay. he still loves Miss Millicent, but the block to their romance is the fact that she has to be kept removed from, you know, the general society because she is so ill. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, he is disappointed that Groucho is only a vet. <laughs> then yep. decides it's all right since Millicent is as sick as a dog. What, and Groucho wasn't a vet in the last one. No. He was Th- a, that's the new element. That's okay. right, yeah. Uh, despite it being two in the morning, Groucho storms up to Margaret Dumont's room to confront her. The next morning, Dr. Walter escorts the enraged Dumont from the hotel. Groucho has the bellhops carry her luggage in a circle out of the hotel and then back into it, demonstrating the popularity of the rest hotel for broken-down women. Ah. Uh, and she says, and he says, um, he describes her as a broken-down woman. Okay. Well, so, uh, 
when she, oh yeah, when she notices it's her own luggage, she says, well, of course, you, you know, you're a broken down woman as well. Uh, Mrs. Rittenhouse and Millicent go to the train station, but Dr. Walzer, oh, so, but Dr. Tra- Walzer, who's supposed to be tra- going to the same place as them, I assume Maine, the colonial village, uh, is it, he's traveling by car. He, the Marks uh, somehow contrived to get him in an accident with them. And then they make it look like he was, uh, drunk driving. Ah, okay. As a way to stop him from getting to, to this place. And so then we have a romantic scene between Millicent and Alan Jones, allowing them to sing a song. And their scene was on horseback. They're riding together on horses. And one of the horses in the script was named Zeppo. Oh, there is nice. an ex- Was it named Zeppo? Like, or is it just they knew it was named Zeppo? But was it actually, like, in the script they called it Zeppo? Yeah, they just called it Zeppo in the script. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just to see if anyone would know the difference. This is, you know, get Zeppo, <laughs> get Zeppo in the movie, I guess. Yeah. Well, for hey, Bur- Zeppo's in the film. For Wait, Brothers, was he a reunited. horse in the last movie? <laughs> not sure. Uh... There's an examination scene with Mr. Rittenhouse being manhandled by the Marx Brothers, including Harper the tree surgeon trying to saw off a limb. <laughs> the colonial village scene is featured again, but with police instead of the Indians. And the film ends with Ellen Jones proving that Millicent isn't sick, and Groucho marries Mrs. Rittenhouse again. Okay. I really like the idea of Harpo being a tree surgeon, and his way of fixing things is to saw bits off. Yeah. That yeah. works, like a surgeon and a surgeon, mm-hmm. like a doctor mm-hmm. and a surgeon. And it, yeah. gives them, it gives them bits to do with the saw. Absolutely. So we had, like, scissors before, and now we have a saw where you could be yeah, sawing a desk, a sawing idea. a chair. People, yeah. tr- people try to sit in a chair and it falls apart. That'd be good. Um, but, Falberg upon pl- reading it... Falberg politely said no. Mm-hmm. The next draft featured many of the same things featured in the first two, except Millicent becomes Judy. Mrs. Rittenhouse has, had become Mrs. Standish. Mm. Quackenbush had been changed to Quackenbrush. Meh. The examination scene of Margaret Dumont was out. Oh, too bad. In this draft is the first mention of a racetrack. Mm. Because in, in this version, where the Marxists, Marxists contrive to have a traffic accident with, doc, with Dr. Walzer and then get him arrested for drunk driving, his assistant is going to bring $500 to bail him out. So they know that the, the assistant... That's a, that's a lot to bail a person out. Yeah, yeah, Back then? Yeah. $500? Sure. That's a lot now. <laughs> Right, it's considerable. Drink driving. He's drinking and driving. Okay, but in, uh, so but they know this guy's a compulsive gambler, mm-hmm. so they get him to go to a, a, a racetrack where then they have to like uh, get him to bet on a particular horse, and then Harpo's going to ride that horse and lose a race, so then he lose the money, and then the, then the doctor can't get out. So it had a scene I think would have been a great scene, which was uh, they don't know it, but the horse that they decided to use, number ten, had already been was already in a rigged race where he was supposed to lo- he's, he was supposed to lose. Or he's supposed to win, sorry, and the, all the other jockeys are supposed to lose. So, of course, Harpo's riding this horse to lose, and so all the other jockeys are trying to stay behind this horse. <laughs> it's trying to go as slow as possible, and it's pretty good. I think that'd be a good, that's a good yeah. gag. That's a good gag. Uh, the film also would have featured Margaret Dumont's million-dollar civic anti-noise campaign, which maintains a strict silence in the middle of New York City for her daughter's nerves. Which <laughs> like that idea. So, people, so the idea is people's, their house is on fire. So they're like having to whisper fire out of their window. And then fire engines are tearing through New York, but just making a tinkling sound like the kit, <laughs> like kittens running. Uh, which I think would be. Yeah, it's a funny joke. A good joke. Uh, Thalberg had agreed to act as an advisor during the writing phase of the film. So Prosh and Seaton had to travel to New York City. To visit him, and they had to go by boat through the Panama Canal, come up to New York. <laughs> Thalberg read their script, made some made some changes, made some. I gave them his advice. Basically, his advice was: for every funny line you give to Groucho, you have to give a funny line to to, to Chico, or Chico will get upset. Okay. Um, and then they went. They traveled back to California. They rewrote the script, incorporating Thalberg's suggestions and and his ideas, and then showed Thalberg the results. His verdict was: he liked the bit about the racetrack. Uh, move the whole thing to Saratoga and start over. <laughs> so now one of the problems with writing the script was that A Night of the Opera was such a big hit. It 
then it became the template of what a Marx Brothers film should be. So it had to start with a Groucho scene. It had to set up a relationship between Chico and Ellen Jones. It had to have a Chico Groucho confrontation. It had to have a you had to have a crazy scene with the Marx Brothers. Okay. You had to have a musical interlude. You had to do some sort of in and out of the bedroom routine. You had to have them thrown out of somewhere. You had to get depressed about it, which is your park bench scene. Mm-hmm. And then you had to send them back for a rousing grand slam finale. So the script had to incorporate all these things, as well as a sanitarium and a racetrack. So um, in the end, it was script number 18 that was finally <laughs> approved by the, by the head office, by front office. But the writing didn't stop there. This is the funny part to me. Once again, they put together a tour. This time, instead of touring the West Coast, they're going to tour the Midwest uh, to test some of the material again on the live audience. So, sure. So, and once again, Thalberg brought in El Bosberg. Uh, to help with the rewrites on the road. So the guy who wrote the stateroom scene was going to take part in this in this film as, as well. So um, the Marxes were guaranteed $13,500 per week, plus a percentage of the take for their for this tour. After two weeks of rehearsal in Los Angeles, and Fulberg attended and actually didn't think much of the material, but everything had been booked, so there's no going back. So his hope was that they would improve it on the road. Uh, now, so the show was designed to run 65 minutes. So it would have songs... It would have um, it would have songs, including a uh, Calmer and Ruby song. It would have uh, you know spoken word parts of it to tie together the scenes, and then it had like six major scenes from the film. So they started the tour in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, and they was they stayed a week in each place. And basically, what they did was they worked on one scene per week. So they would try and fix a scene for the week of that stay. Say in Duluth, they would work on the examination scene with with uh, them looking at Harpo. And they would work on that. And then the next one, they would do the Margaret Dumont scene, or they would do uh, the bedroom the, the, the bedroom scene where they come, keep, keep interrupting Groucho with his date. Um, they just keep working on those sort of things. And, you know, taking stuff out that the audience didn't laugh at, adding things in, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't work, getting the timing right, to laughter, you know, all the things that they did before. Um, so, they, they would, so they started the tour in Duluth. They went to Duluth, then Minneapolis, then Chicago, then Cleveland. And then that famous Midwest city, San Francisco, was their final stop <laughs> on the tour. Um, now, the shows were quite successful. Um, like, we don't know all everything, but um, the Marx Brothers could still pack them in. The, the, the week in Minneapolis... Well, they, they just gro- had a hit movie. They grossed $24,000 for their... For, yeah. yeah, great. That's excellent. Yeah, they just had a... That's right. Here's your chance to see this group of people that you love. Yeah, that you just like I mean, from the movies. Like, And when people... Like I say, when people went, they knew what they were seeing. They weren't going in expecting a perfect thing. They knew they were going in to see a test... A screen, you know, test preview of, of the new next movie, but but yeah, it was irresistible the idea of seeing the Marx Brothers like again when, on stage. When, and... I think that would work now. It's like if uh, you know, if oh, yeah. like a yeah, Will Ferrell and uh, John C. Riley were just like, hey, we're doing a we're Step Brothers around. two. Yeah, we're doing like a Step Brothers two thing. We're going to work some scenes. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely, it goes. Yeah, that'd that. be cool. Um, it's interesting that sometimes a joke didn't work because of a particular thing. Like so, often a joke didn't work as a question. It had to be a statement. For instance, there. Al Bosberg's had a Al Bosberg's line when Groucho takes Harpo's pulse. Either he's dead or my watch has stopped. Yeah. Originally was, is he dead or has my watch stopped? Mm. And the audience didn't laugh at that no. because they're waiting for the ne- the, the funny right. line. Yeah. So you needed to make the statement, and then that's the joke. I thought that was an interesting little thing that they were kind of learning as they went. Um, the mime scene when Harpo tries to tell Chico that Groucho is falling into a trap with Esther Muir's character with Flo in the movie. Uh, actually grew out of improv. Originally, it, they just needed like a short link between scenes because they just needed a link. Uh, and so, uh, Harpo started coming up with this little mime sequence where he's trying to 
tell Chico what's happening. And Chico then started doing his own like guesses and stuff like that. And they started working the scene. And as the tour went on, they just kept adding and adding and taking stuff away and changing it and doing this and that and came up with this little sequence, which is quite a great sequence, Interesting. I think. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Thalberg came to see the show during its final week in San Francisco and he was actually really surprised at how, how good it was compared to what, you know, what it had, what it had started, what he had seen. But by the way, that did not stop the endless rewrites. Uh, they didn't tinker with the comedy. But they expanded and improved the scenes around the comedy. Okay. So it was felt that there was not yet a strong park bench scene. So Prosh and Seaton wrote and rewrote searching for something that would work there, for instance. Uh, finally, it was decided that they should start actually shooting the movie. Sam Wood was brought back in, probably because he was pretty efficient last time. He was familiar with the material. And the Marx Brothers were really eager to film the comedy scenes right away. They didn't want to wait. They actually they actually uh, bumped up the... F- bumped ahead or whatever. They moved... The shooting schedule ahead or behind or whatever. How do you say it? How do you say that? They went from the 15th yep. of September to the end of, sure. of yeah. August. That all makes sense, yeah. And it, it didn't quite work out. They actually started on September 3rd, but earlier than they were supposed to because the Marx Brothers wanted to get the comedy scenes down when it was fresh. Um, so why the Marx Brothers agreed to allow, allow Sam Wood to do the film again, it's hard to say. It could just be comfort. that They were used to it. Even though they hated, they did not like him. I wouldn't say they hated him, but they did not like him. They didn't enjoy the twenty takes per, yeah, per per take. I hear you. Twenty, you know, per scene kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, the success of the Night of the Opera kind of proved his eccentricities might have a value, and their fifteen percent share of Night of the Opera earned them six hundred thousand dollars. So that's pretty good money. Yeah, you know, for that time period. Like when we were talking that. Well, well, you got to think like five hundred dollars to bail you out for drunk driving. Yeah, it's very <laughs> time. Deflation. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, now, they did break a rule, though, and Thalberg allowed them to break this rule, which was, his rule was, you never start shooting a movie till the script is finished. And the script was still being rewritten when they started filming the comedy sequences. So I guess his idea was, well, we're not going to change the comedy sequences, so that's fine. Yeah. We could just keep working. Uh, so then, after two weeks of solid work, and this is where the Marx Brothers career hits a, a terrible place, Sam Wood came into the set, he was crying. And his actual work thing he said was, he said, the little brown fellow has died, and Irving Thalberg was dead. Oh. Age 37. He'd caught a cold over the, the weekend, yeah. Liberty weekend, and uh, it just couldn't get rid of it, and eventually it just proved too much for his system, which was already... Yeah, he had a heart. Yeah. He had a heart problem, and uh, he died. And it's hard to convey, like, to us nowadays, how important Irving Thalberg was to the movie industry of Hollywood at that time period. Like, he really was, like, this sort of golden boy, this, like, paragon of what a producer should be. You know, even though any Thalberg film you see will not have his name on it because he did not believe that the producer should put his name on the film. So you don't know what films he did. Yeah. But he did so many films, so many great films. And he brought so many changes and so many improvements, just, not just for film, but for the workers or for people who worked in the, in the industry. You know, he was really beloved. And, you know, the fact that he was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, but also one of the kindest men in Hollywood, you know, really tells you something about his character. And, Basically, all of Hollywood knew him or felt like they knew him. So it was such a blow when he died. Like, MGM shut down for a full day when he died. Like, they just closed closed up and everyone just went home because it was so devastating. I mean, obviously, you couldn't stop working entirely because you're a business and you, you need to you need to keep money rolling in or people don't get paid. But uh, And then on, on the day of his funeral at 10 a.m., every studio in Hollywood shut, stopped work and had a f- five minutes of silent uh-huh. prayer. Because he was such an important person, yeah. you know. So, for the Marx Brothers, though, 
just to be pra pragmatic, it was a terrible blow for their career. You know, up to this point, they'd ha been pretty lucky. You know, they had Ma uh, Mankiewicz, who, for all his eccentricities and the fact that he wasn't really useful after lunch, was a really good producer of comedy films. He had a really good ear and eye for what was funny and what would work for the Marx Brothers and let them have their head, let them have their lead to create what they wanted and make make their films. You know, they had McCary, who was a you know fantastic filmmaker. You know, so they had all this luck and fortune. They found Thalberg. They never would again have Thalberg. They never would again have the opportunities that Thalberg gave them. Because after this, no one trusted the Marx Brothers the way that he did, the way the Mankiewicz did. So they never got a Kaufman to write for them. They never got Kalmar and Ruby back to write for them. None of the people that made them who they were ever worked for them again. They kind of got, you know, someone who's pretty good. He'll be fine. Yeah. Kind of writers, you know, or one guy working on a movie, you know, and stuff like that, where, cause the budgets got cut and everything changed, you know, which is weird because a day at the races earned more money than a night of the opera. You know, it was a huge success, but uh, it was actually, it actually, the Marx Brothers actually left MGM after that film and Mayer didn't care because Mayer didn't like them, mm. you know? And so, you know, I like to say that's unusual, but that's not, unusual. it's not unusual because, no. because to us, we're thinking, well, why would he get rid of money like that? It's not all about money. It's not all about money. That's right. There's ego and stuff like that involved. Well, there's as well. ego and there's also tone. Like you want to have your, uh, you want to have your studio have a certain, uh, flavor and, mm. uh, you know, if these clowns are here yeah yeah it also like spreads the chaos so if they get away with this then other mm. people get away with mm -hmm. this and you're going to get more of this and it's like that's what not what we want we want the classy movies that are or whatever whatever you want yeah there's a lot of studios that are like that that will turn down you know set money i mean otherwise almost all studios would make cheap horror movies if you just want a quick turnaround yeah and make yeah. money and studios don't just only make cheap <laughs> horror movies that's right that's right, right. Yeah, there's that, that all Lionsgate. That's right. You know, they all, and even Lionsgate, if you looked at their film releases, has some classy movies. And That's stuff right. Like that you know, because you you want to you want to be you want to kind of answer your desire to be to get recognition. Yep. But also your desire. But to But if money. they just wanted to do Saw, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be enough. Yes. They could just do all the Saw movies, and whoever does the Purge movies could just do all the Purge movies. Yeah. And it yeah. would all be fine. Yeah. Um, so production was halted on a day at the, the races. Um, production duties were, get, were handed over to Lawrence Weingarten, who was uh, Thalberg's brother-in-law. He worked under Thalberg. Um, he was the man who destroyed Keaton's career. So I have a real love for Why did he destroy Keaton? Is that too long a story, or can you sum it um, up? Okay, well, when Keaton... Buster Keaton, we're talking? Yeah, Buster Keaton. When Buster Keaton uh, left uh, his... When he gave up his private production company, that the Buster Keaton Studios, that okay. made his own movies, uh, he was convinced by his business manager and brother-in-law, uh, Joseph Schenk, to sign with MGM. What he didn't know was that Joseph Schenk had a back deal that if he brought Keaton to MGM, he would get this amount of money or he would get something for his services. He wasn't acting in Keaton's best interest. Keaton signed MGM, even even though Chaplin told him not to sign with MGM. Chaplin said, this will ruin your career. You want to you wanna stay independent. This is where you're, This is what's best for us. Lloyd was independent, Chaplin was independent, and Keaton was independent until he signed with MGM. The first film he did with MGM, interestingly enough, The Cameraman, was a real success for Keaton. But the reason it was a success was he convinced Thalberg and Weingarten that he needed to go to New York to shoot location there. As I mentioned before, Thalberg did not like location shooting. He, he really only wanted stuff happening on the, on the back lot. But he allowed Keaton to do that. And Keaton had free reign to do stuff 
without the con- without the oversight of producers and stuff like that. They demanded a script from him. He never scripted a movie before. Mm-hmm. He he could barely read. He grew up in vaudeville. He was born in vaudeville. He grew up in vaudeville. He didn't have an education, for better or for worse, in terms of his career, for worse. But you know, he he did everything. He just improvised stuff. When they got when they reached an impasse in a movie, they stopped they stopped working for a while and went and played baseball until someone you know until an idea popped in someone's head and they went, oh, I got it. Let's try this. You know, that's just the way they did. They just problem solved in a sort of unconscious way. You know, now he's at MGM where they demand a script has to be in place. You know, we have to have know this. You know, got to have this happen. Da, 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 da. Everything has to be such and such. You know, and what's weird is that they treated him like a dummy. But for years afterwards, the cameraman was shown to every person, every comedian who came to MGM had to sit and watch the cameraman as an example of one of the best films they ever did, best comedies they ever did. But because they tightened the rein so much around Keaton and took away so much of his control and stopped letting him make movies the way he wanted to, it destroyed his self-confidence and drove him to drink oh. and eventual to the destruction of his career. You know, I mean, there's still some okay movies that came out. By the way, uh, sorry about the sirens. Yeah. We're near sirens. Every time we talk about the death of someone's career, uh, a siren will be heard. He, uh, yeah, he, he, he still had, he still made movies, but it's just that there was a slow decline because, you know, no, people stopped paying attention to you at the studio. And so you stop getting the writers, you stop getting the, yeah. the people that are going to make your movies better, you know. And his unit that he used for years and years was taken away from him. Fred Gabori, his cameraman, you know, this guy who is like a clock who could like, you know, hand crank a film so perfectly that they could make a movie like The Playhouse, where Keaton is doing double, triple, quadruple, quintuplet, octuplet exposure onto film, you know, playing different characters. And the cameraman is so steady with his turning of the camera that he's able, they're able to successfully, you know, have him play different characters oh, wow. in one scene and stuff like that. And it was all hand cranked. And it was all, you know, using surveying equipment and stuff like that to get everything working just right, you know, and how they mask the camera off and stuff like that. You know, he lost all those people when he went to MGM. You know, so it's just a slow attrition. So I always, I always blame Lawrence Wenger. Okay, so there we go. That's that was your Lawrence Buster Wenger. Keaton diversion of the, of the day. A little, uh... And that is why I think that while production was halted, Prosh and Seaton were given a host of revision assignments. So I think that Lawrence Weingarten came onto the scene and he's like, I'm as good as my brother, mm-hmm. my brother-in-law. I can show, I can show you what I can do. I'm going to put my, I'm going to have my fingers in this movie. Yeah. So not only. wants their fingerprints on it. Yeah. So, you know, like, so the studio wanted like a love scene between Ellen Jones and Marino Sullivan in a boat. So that's what they were working on. So, so like Prosh and Seaton had a friend who was working at a different studio on a movie. He started working in this movie when Prosh and Seaton were finished their, their, screenplay for they had the races his movie was being you know being directed was under in production when they're still worrying about how to get a boat into the scene <laughs> you know like everything was working so slowly and so also during the break harpo got married okay which may have been a result of Thalberg's early death he may have he was 48 he may have realized that yeah, life is time is, life is short that's right and you know he loved kids and he wanted to have a family and stuff like that so he he secretly got secretly married at that time Oh, it's, it's expected he'd keep things quiet. Mm. And then Groucho, uh, with his friend Norman Krasna, he wrote a, sc- a screenplay, uh, based on the, uh, um, Mrs., uh, what's her name? Mrs. Wallace and the King Edward? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah I know yeah. what you're talking about, yeah. yeah. Called The Grand Passion, which was later changed to The King and the Chorus Girl, 
It was actually produced by Warner Brothers. Oh, okay. And then he worked on another screenplay with another writer named Ken England, Ken England called Madcap Mary Mooney, which was about this uh, aviatrix, this female pilot, uh, and her adventures and stuff like that. But it was never produced, probably because Amelia Earhart disappeared around that time. Yeah, that makes sense. And kind of put yeah. that cast a pall on those sort of stories. Yeah, that's not uh, dissimilar to uh, what happened with the Lindbergh uh, kidnapping, uh, with, the, with the kidnapping plot uh, in an That's right, movie. that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, real real life events do put a kibosh in comedy. <laughs> sure, sure. So on the eighth of December, the screenplay was wrapped up and ready to be filmed again. Only more rewrites were called for. Even in March of nineteen thirty seven, they were rewriting dialogue for scenes that had already been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, songs were taken out of the film. There was an Ellen Jones number called "I've Got a Message from the Man in the Moon," which Groucho yeah, sings repri- at the end. reprises it in yeah. the movie, but that originally was at the beginning of the film as well. Uh, and then well, I think one of the most unfortunate cuts, which you sent me a link for yesterday, was removal of a Kalmar and Ruby song, which they'd written, especially for the film called Dr. Hackenbush, and which was supposed to be sung by Groucho. That was also taken out of the film at this time. Which later he would sing uh, often at parties, apparently. Yes, it was the song he loved. Even the comedy scenes, the scenes which they had taken on the road, had carefully timed and worked out to the nth degree, were revised. Oh. Perfectly good dialogue was taken out of the film. And this great scene with seltzer water... Uh, when they did the scene with Esther Muir, the Flo, the the, the uh, woman who's going to entrap Groucho mm-hmm. when she comes to his rooms, and before they show up as house detectives, I remember he orders scotch. He says, "Can I get scotch on the hopscotch?" Uh, originally, they would arrive as as bellboys, Chico and Harpo, to disrupt the, this romance, and they would spray seltzer water all over the place. Well, this scene was taken out because someone at the studio didn't like seltzer water scenes, so that was scene was removed. That was removed <laughs> from the scene. So everyone, so once Thalberg was gone, this movie was, I guess, fair game for everyone's, everyone to start messing with. So they had a hand in the success of the Marx Brothers. There was also a couple of legal, legal issues that cropped up at this point as well, or during the filming. The one, and you said you didn't like Quackenbush as much as you like Quackenbush. Quackenbush, I should say. <laughs> well, there was a reason that Quackenbush was taken out of the film, and that was because word got out, Variety Road or whatever, that Grudge would be playing a character called Dr. Quackenbush. They had 37 Dr. Quackenbushes contact them, <laughs> ready to start legal proceedings if the name was used in the movie. So they had to use a replacement, uh, and they they tested out replacement names during the live tour. Yeah. And that's when they settled on Dr. Hackenbush okay, as the best now, name. Just let me let me ask you this question, because this doesn't make a, a lick of sense to me. Yeah. So, okay. So you're saying there are how many doctors named Quackenbush? 37 different doctors. There are 37 doctors named Quackenbush, mm-hmm. but there's no doctors named Hackenbush. So you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. At and, least none that were litigious. Yeah, but like, yeah, you're a doctor, and mm-hmm. you, the first part of your name is Quack. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Come on, and, but there's no one's a hack. Yeah, uh. that's the writers. Hack also sounds bad now. I'm thinking about it, if you're a surgeon, you wouldn't <laughs> want to be a hack. Okay, anyway, the other other. By the way, sorry. Sure. Uh, Hackenbush. That wasn't. Uh, that's uh, that actually sounds like a tree surgeon, doesn't it? Mm. That sounds exactly like yeah, a tree surgeon. Yeah. It feels like that's an old uh, Harpo name that they might have. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Brought back. Yeah, it could be. The other was an argument over the writing credits for the film. This is the other problem they had. Originally, the film was to be credited as original story and screenplay by Al Bosberg, Robert Parash, and George Seaton. Okay. With the additional parenthetical remark, which would appear in the Academy Bulletin, George Oppenheimer will get an additional credit in the Academy Bulletin. That would be the that was the credits. All right. This wasn't good enough for Al Bosberg. <laughs> he wrote to the Motion Picture Academy and said that the movie was of an unusual category and would require special credit. He suggested. Original story and screenplay by Robert Parash and George Seaton. Comedy scenes and construction by Al Bosberg. Okay. 
The studio objected that this gave no credit to anybody else since the movie was a comedy, and so most of the comedy, most of the scenes are comedy. But they did like his suggested order, so they changed it. So they came up with a new version. It was original story and screenplay by Robert Parrish, George Seaton, and Al Boesberg, which is fair because he came on later than they did. They were working on the original treatments. He did not like this at all. Apparently he was furious <laughs> at this. Absolutely enraged. People could hear him all over Hollywood, I guess. That's great. Uh, it's but everyone, really, it's really important. That's the important stuff that you, you, you. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, everybody thought this was more than fair, and they didn't understand why he's so mad. So Boswick said that if he couldn't have credit the way he wanted it, he didn't want any at all. Uh-huh. So the studio came up with a revised version, which was story and screenplay by Robert Parrish and George Seaton. After Boswick declared that he would go on national radio and tell the truth about the credits <laughs> to a day at the races, the studio decided it had enough. <laughs> Just put the credit as a spinning question mark and move on. And said, so it really did become original story and screenplay by Robert Prosh, George Seaton, and George Oppenheimer. Al Boesberg will get additional credit in the Academy Bolton. So he was completely out of the credits. Uh-huh. And then shortly after this, the studio was contacted by Boesberg's lawyer, asking that his name be removed entirely from the film. So the studio happily complied. So there was no mention of Al Boesberg at all in the film credits. And what's so weird is that he, didn't, he did not take any credit for A Night of the Opera. He didn't like, get any credit on that film. Why he wanted to like hog the credits for Day of the Races, I don't understand. Maybe he didn't think. Uh, maybe maybe he thought that uh, Night of the Opera was going to be just this chaotic mess. But, you know, some of the other movies had been yeah, a bit more. Maybe not the kind of classy movies you want to put your name on. Then when he goes, oh, wait a minute, this is uh, something I should attach my my uh, wagon to. Uh, he wanted to do it for the next one. I can see that. Yeah, could be. You know, it's a very different movie, Duck Soup, than uh, Night of the Night mm-hmm. of the Opera. And mm-hmm. if you're Trying to, you know, make yourself a little bigger. I could see how you'd want to, like, yeah. you know, yeah. hook up to that. So, the last thing to say is that it was a very long shoot for Day of the Races. So unlike their previous films, uh, they started shooting September 3rd. There was a month-long layoff uh, while, uh, during Thalberg, between, during the kind of switchover from Thalberg to, to Weingarten. But even with that, the film, the shooting did not wrap until April 1937. Oh, That's wow. a long okay. shoot. Yeah. Especially for those days. All right, so that's it. Okay, and uh, like the the other the other something you didn't mention, I think, with the structure of the of the film was uh, have Harpo do dangerous stunts in the last uh, couple of scenes, mm. like that a man of his age should probably not be doing <laughs> at this point. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's forty eight. So pretty good. Forty eight. Yeah, there's some horse stunts. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some rough stuff that he was uh, yeah, getting yeah. into. That like you fall off a horse mm. in that kind of situation. Yeah. That's the that's your last movie. Well, you're right. You do feel a lot more at that age than you. Yeah, do they, I mean they they got him on a trapeze in the last one, whipping around <laughs> hither and hither. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, here's a first let's, thing. Let's do, let's do it over. Let's just kind of do right. it overall. Like, let me what start, do we think let of the Let me film? start first of all with the poster. Sure. Okay, the poster that you got on your DVD there, which I've seen as the poster for the film, yeah. is the Marx Brothers in bed with a horse, which yeah. is a funny funny image, yeah. but it's also the final scene of a previous movie, yeah. which yeah. is uh, Harpo sleeping with a horse. Sure. Like, okay, we've been... Uh, we've been Continuity. We've, yeah, a little bit of that. A little sure. nod to uh, the previous movie. To the past, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, as for what, uh, the o- overall, uh, overall, I, I don't think it was as good as Night at the, Night at the Opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs were dull. Did not care for the songs. So but, terrible. But again, this is so weird because, you know, as we, as we talked, uh, previously, when you take out, uh, Chico's piano, Harpo's harp, the musical numbers, uh, the comedy doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. So, wh- what do I know? But I, but yeah, I, again, first time I saw it, I was like, ugh, to these musical numbers. <laughs> They're keeping me from the comedy. So, was, <laughs> there, were, there were still that. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I found a little strange in this was, uh, it's the first movie where, uh, Groucho feels fear. Yeah, I didn't like that. Groucho is an invulnerable character. Yeah. 
you know, uh, everything bounces off of in previous movies, and even yeah. in where he's more humanized in uh, in, in Night of the Opera. The opera. Yeah. But this one, he is legitimately. Oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, I'm worried. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And and taking off at the first sign of trouble. And yeah, that I could see how that would work comedically, but it doesn't really work as the Groucho character yeah. to me. Yeah. So I thought that was a little bit of a misstep. Uh, I like the idea of Dumont as a hypochondriac. That's great. Sure, that's good. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it it gives her a high status thing. Uh, them needing her money, that all works out uh, fine. Um, <laughs> I this this was a small thing, but uh, uh, first time you see Harpo, uh, he's a jockey. Yeah. Next time you see Harpo, he's in his full Harpo outfit yeah. with a top hat, hobo style. Yeah. And it's like, when did he become this? And I get like, if you know the Marx Brothers, it makes sense that yeah. now he's in his Harpo gear. Mm-hmm. But in the movie itself, it's like, why is the jockey now mm-hmm. this guy? Yeah. What and why has he got a horn? What's the? He didn't have a horn as the jockey, and now he's like talking through a horn. Yeah. What's yeah. this? What's this business? So that was a little bit like, okay, you know, we're it's, just gonna. It's weird that he has a legitimate job. Like I, I know in Horse Feathers, he he's a he's a dog catcher. Yeah. But it seems but like it's not really. He's not really. I just he still a, still looks like a hobo. And he's the assistant to the guy in uh, Night at the Opera, and mm-hmm. it's like okay, and it starts with them beating him up and yeah, all yeah. that kind of that that kind of business. But even that is kind of a it's a job where it's not really a job. It's sort of yeah. you know. Like it's not like a nine to five job where you punch in. I mean, not that a jockey is either, but a jockey you have definite responsibilities. You have to train the horses, and you know, like there are they don't talk about that in the film. The technical elements of racing would be really boring to bring up yeah. in a movie. Why isn't this real? But you know, the fact is, is that it's an actual like job with responsibilities that aren't, aren't just like laying someone's clothes out on a chair. They're actual like physical things you got to get there in the morning, and you have to you know do stuff with the horse and, and brush it, and and you know I'm assuming that grooms are to help, but you, you'll also be Here, doing things. Here's the and... weirdest thing to me about, and again, we're just into generals before yeah. we get into specifics. So you've got two setups here. One is the world of the sanitarium, yeah. and in that one, you've got a guy who is a horse doctor. A horse doctor, that's his thing. He's a horse doctor, but yeah. no one knows he's a horse doctor. Yeah. And in the other one, we've got horses are racing. Yeah. Never those two stories yeah, will meet. I know. You think the yeah, horse doctor, who we see like earlier, like is giving Margaret Dumont horse pills <laughs> yes. for anxiety. Yes. Now you've got a, Now pills. next time we see the horse, the horse has anxiety. Mm. He's freaking out at the uh, at the at the goon. The voice okay, of Morgan. Yeah. Well, that's right. So you've got a pill for a horse that stops anxiety. We set that up over there. We never have the horse doctor and the horse do anything. So that's my big problem with the film is that it feels like these are these are a bunch of uh, disparate uh, elements yeah. that never connect, whereas I think Night at the Opera did connect and made one cohesive story. Yeah. This is like, oh, we're doing a comedy scene now, and we're done with that comedy scene. Now we're on to this, and the plot doesn't matter, and who cares? Yeah. And, and then really at the end going, it's a happy ending, huh, folks? Oh, boy. It's everything. We're going to give you everything that makes a happy ending. Yeah. And it's a little too (laughs) try hard at the end uh, for me. And also I thought Groucho's jokes were a little too slow in this. His pacing is is not Groucho-esque. Well, because he's afraid. He can't make fun of people because he's in a position of vulnerability. He's not in a position of... So uh, most of his jokes consist of, well, she's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. That's the cutest little number I've ever seen. That's the sections that I've ever seen. He just says it four times. Four different Mm -hmm. times in the movie, he says the same variation of the same joke. It's boring. Uh, yeah, you know I like this movie when I saw it as a as a young kid, as a as a young teen or whatever, however old I was. Um, you know I enjoyed 
because I just enjoyed the Marx Brothers, so I enjoyed the Marx Brothers elements of it. But when we saw it together at the Ridge Theater, as we mentioned earlier, I didn't think much of it at that viewing. And then watching it again for this, I have to say that it's so far my least favorite Marx Brothers film. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a real failure as a Marx Brothers movie. I'd I think it's the yeah. I think it's the bourgeoisification of the Marx Brothers that takes them from being these sort of magical creatures of the the films, which, I, which is an element I love of the of the Marx Brothers. That's why I love those films as a kid. That's what attracted me to them was that they were like Bugs Bunny movies with humans in them. You know, they had this weird element of magic where they could reach in their pocket and bring out a, a you know a, a flamethrower. You know, and it's, it doesn't or have a candle. You know, whatever, like a cup yeah. of coffee, just things like that. You know, that there's a, a doghouse with a dog in it on your as a, a tattoo. I love those elements of it, and and this movie is this slow. And I mean, I talked about it before that this each like I love. I think Night of the Opera is a very good movie, but I feel like a Night of the Opera it has everything. Everything that Night of Opera is good, this movie is like the the negative of it. Yeah, it's weird. It, they do a lot of the same things, and mm-hmm. it turns out not as and like again, there's still yeah. some very funny stuff. In yeah, it. there's so good. But scenes what it what it, it reminds Marx Brothers in it. What but. it reminds me of is I love Bugs Bunny. I love Bugs Bunny cartoons, and like so, Bugs mm-hmm. Bunny's going up against the opera singer who won't let him sleep, and yeah, the yeah. opera singer punches him, and sure. you know, Bugs Bunny gives him hell. That's great. And then, and I think that's Chuck. That's Jones. Night of the Opera. Okay, that's great. That's you know what Chuck I mean? That's, Jones. That's the Night of the Opera. Version. Now let me tell you what this one is. Yeah, this is a later Chuck Jones yeah. where Bugs Bunny has long eyelashes. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, and or even later, it's the comic book Bugs Bunny where he has kids he has to look after. Yeah, it's got and a they're the funny characters. Nephew, yeah, they're the funny characters. He's not the funny character anymore. Yeah, it's just just a bit of a stiff. Yeah, yeah, you know, and like if you see a still photo of him, uh, there's a quote, a Mark Twain quote underneath. It's like, knock it off. <laughs> Bugs Bunny isn't Mark Twain. That's not what he is. Yeah. You know, even though I know you admire Mark Twain, he's his own. He's his own thing. Yeah. And yeah. It's just I just feel feel like, I mean, like I say, this movie. As a kid, I liked this movie. It had some funny sequences in it. it has, and I still think those sequences are really funny. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like this movie really is over egged. There's just too much in this movie. There's too much dancing. There's too much singing. Yeah. There's too much drama. There's too much. In a way, there's there's not enough Marx Brothers. Nope. They're definitely like if I felt like they were second class citizens in Night of the Opera. They and even definitely... sometimes when I'm enjoying a Marx Brothers scene, I thought it went on too long. And mm. this thing where it's just like, okay, that's the sketch. We get it. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to go any farther. Well, you, yeah, you feel you can feel where the timing went out of the sequences. Yeah. They they spent all this time touring around and perfecting, and then you know during this layoff when everyone decided they wanted to have their Hands in a Thalberg movie, and they started making them rewrite the comedy sequences that they had timed and perfected on the road. Uh, you know, like Boesberg was there in this on the set with script in his lap, with a t- t- with a stopwatch, yeah. ready to time the sequences and stuff like that. And yeah, it just it really falls apart. It's really it's it's really sad. I think there's still successful elements, sure, but yeah, it's really flabby. It's a really flabby movie, and I and it's the longest movie too by far. It's almost two hours long, which for that time period is way too long for a comedy movie. Way too long. Then let's go through it. Let's start. All let's right. start at a train station. Or uh, opening opening credits. Anything special in the opening credits? <sighs> I don't remember. No, not really. Yeah. You I know, much... I, I mean, I miss the I miss the days of uh, the barrels rolling down. Barrels <laughs> rolling down, or you ducks know. in a pot. <laughs> yeah, it feels. Like, yeah, I uh, didn't care for that, but uh, or or just like the animated horse laughing, which yeah. it feels like would have been more appropriate for this one. Yeah. Because it actually had a horse in it. Yeah. Okay, but we start off at a train station. Very good. Yeah, the film moments with the train pulling into it a station. It almost feels like a New Yorker cartoon. 
What, the train command? Uh, the train station, because it's like, oh. you know, these glamorous destinations, and then the third thing is sanitarium. Uh, yes, and it's yeah. like almost like a Charles Adams, uh, you know, which I guess would be Saturday Evening Post. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, with a, you know, creepy guys like lead, leading you towards this. Come on, sanitarium. So, yes, we're, we're, at, we're, we're at Sparkling Springs Lake, and uh, there's a row of buses waiting to take passengers to the destinations. And as you say, there's these fantastic destinations. There's a hotel. There's a racetrack. And then there's the sanitarium. And the sanitarium driver, Tony, played by Chico, he can't understand why no one wants to go to the sanitarium. Don't you want to rest cure at the mm-hmm. sanitarium? Hey, sir, you came here to entertain yourself at the racetrack. You want to go dry out at the sanitarium? Like, I, it seems like a weird start to a movie to me. Right. Start off with like a, a, a conundrum that is not really a puzzle. And you know maybe what I mean? this doesn't matter, or maybe it does. But, you know, uh, later on, Chico is a con man. Mm-hmm. And it's like... But here, he's all... Well, sweetheart. Well, he's a sweetheart, but like I think the the problem for me is like is Chico like Chico is normally a guy who's a little bit oblivious. He's, uh, he's not. He's on the make. Yeah, he's not. He's on the make, but but he's a dumb on the make. Yes. Like he's not. He he succeeds. Yeah. Uh, so, not because he's so clever that he's outsmarting everybody. Yeah, yeah. But in this one, he's outsmarting everybody. It's like Chico isn't a genius. Yeah. Chico shouldn't be outsmarting people. He sure. gets all things mixed up. Yeah, yeah. That's his deal. That's right. You know, and I could see I could see like him as an oblivious guy going, "Why doesn't anyone want to come to the nice sanitarium? I'm helping the nice lady." Uh, but then, yeah, who knows? <laughs> is he trying to do a con? Who knows? But yeah, he's the sweetheart. We yes. start off with like the good guy. He's for sure the good guy. Yes, helping like, the nice lady. Because we meet we meet Judy Standish, yes. who is the the owner and operator of the Standish Sanitarium that Chico's trying to attract people to come stay at. Yeah, uh, everyone wants to go to the Morgan Hotel, right, uh, or to the racetrack. But there she is, and she's like, "Oh, I guess I'll won't be able to pay. You know, we'll have to let you go and stuff." And he's like, "You can't let me go. You don't have to pay me." Chico doesn't have to get paid. When did this start? When did he start, like, not needing money? Yeah, he's, like, t- he's way too sweet off the top. Also, it's a, it's a weird concept of, like, the poor, sweet sanitarium owner. It's like, you know, that old thing. <laughs> oh, all she wants to do is run her sanitarium. Yeah, yeah. Nice no, lady. Really why, won't she, why, why won't someone help this poor sanitarium lady? Yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. We're, that's the premise. Moving on. Yeah, I thought I knew Maureen O'Sullivan from uh, from the movies, but it turns out I didn't really. I thought for some reason I thought she was in Little Shop around the corner, which she's not. She did play Jane to Johnny Weissmuller's Tarzan for MGM. Okay. So she was an MGM actress. She was a contract performer. Okay. So she can swing on a rope. She can swing on a rope, and she can also swing on a star. She can come in and uh, do musical numbers, I guess, or at least be standing nearby during musical numbers. Sure. Uh, she's best known to me for her role as Jane in. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, or Gergars and uh, Laurence Olivier one. Yeah, one of the one of the more obscure Tarzan movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's also Mia, she was Mia, Mia Farrow's mother. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and oh, she played her mother in Hannah and Her Sisters. Oh, neat. Okay, yeah. good to know. So anyway, she's you know we said she's sad. She's uh so so then we cut after this little scene talking about the sanitarium. We cut to the lobby of the sanitarium. Mrs. Upjohn, Margaret Dumont, is upset because the resident doctor has told her that she is in perfect health. Let me just say this. Margaret Dumont, still money in the bank. Still money in the bank. Can I also say this? That resident doctor, a jerk. He knows that the the place is in trouble. He knows we're in financial trouble. He knows this is the big money earner. Why isn't he like helping helping out a little bit by playing along? Maybe just give her a little placebos. She's, she's happy. I don't know. What maybe you, ethics? Hippo- yeah, hypocritical. <laughs> You know, but he is going to be fired soon if he doesn't watch his watch yeah, himself. Yeah, exactly. So Mrs. Upjohn is a gullible hypo, is a gullible hypochondriac. Sure, and has little use for an honest appraisal of her health. Which is fine. Which is a nice way to treat like a rich person. You mm-hmm. know, look, 
You know, uh, it's it's good. It's a good it's a good uh, premise. Yeah. Judy's fiance, Gil Stewart, played by Ellen Jones, who is also in A Night of the Opera. Okay. So we get more of his singing. Great. Arrives to com- comfort Judy by telling her that he has spent fifteen hundred dollars on a racehorse named Hi Hat. What a comfort! I must be feeling way better. And I looked. I did like a. That's three drinking and driving bailouts. I, <laughs> I did an inflation thing. Yeah. It's equivalent to twenty six thousand dollars nowadays. Now you yourself have a horse. Not that word. Not that much. Okay. Money. But is that uh, is for for a horse? Uh, no, that's like not, the... That's not crazy. Okay. But. It is a, it's too much money for a, a horse you'd buy that's a long shot. So we're, we're establishing that this horse didn't work out in its previous stable. He's buying it on cheap to race it. And that seems like too much money to me it for would, a horse that you're buying. Okay. Cause you could go get that horse at auction for way less. And I don't want, again, uh, you know, this is me rewriting the classics, but it's like, give a sweet reason why you got that horse. They were gonna they were gonna put the horse down. Yeah, I saw something in the horse. Yeah, he was nervous, but he's very calm around me. Mm-hmm. Something. Yeah, you know, give me an angle on yeah. on on this, and it's like, okay, now we like the horse too. We're all sweet yeah. on the horse. Gives you something to pay off a little later on. No, that's true. That's that is true. Instead of like, I'm just the poor sanitarium owner. I bought a horse. Neither of these things I'm relating to <laughs> at all. But you could that's have right. spent that money at this helping the sanitarium. That's right. Yeah. What's the? And he's also abandoning his singing career in order to, to uh, wow. take on this racehorse. Why do I care about your singing career as well? He's going to win money at the racetrack. You know how easy that is to do. And he's going to give it to Judy. All of it. So the sanitarium can keep going. That's right. So Judy is upset that Gil has given up on his singing career and refuses <laughs> to see him again okay. until he has gotten rid of the horse. Yeah. Once again, it's always a weird thing in a musical world where everyone can sing. Where a person has a singing career. And it's like, everyone sings. He sings at Morgan's Hotel. Mm. We also established that. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mrs. Upjohn is leaving for Florida to see Dr. Hackenbush, who, who had originally diagnosed her condition. Tony convinces her to stay by telling her that Hackenbush will soon be at the sanitarium. This is in this se- sequence is where they, they uh, actually do the bringing the suitcases around and back into the, yep. the hotel. So that, that was something that came out of one of the treatments. Where, um, and that's fine. Yeah, that's fine, bit. It's, it's okay. It's a good game. Yeah. Mrs. Upjohn is so happy to hear this that she hints that she may be willing to financially support the sanitarium if Hackenbush joins the staff. Um, Tony wears Hackenbush, who we learn is a down-at-heels horse doctor who needs no further persuasion to abandon his practice and go to the sanitarium. Yeah. Even even though he seems to be nice to his horse. Yeah. 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 He can apparently talk to a horse. Yes. That might come in handy later. Yeah. Doc- nope. Not at all. We're not going to do anything with that? All right. Very good. Yeah, I like the... Uh, Take two of these and call me if anything changes. It's an yeah. obvious joke, yeah. but it's still a fun, yeah, it's a, a fun, fun joke. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it wasn't obvious then. Maybe it was brand new that day. Uh, I wonder if they reuse that horse in later scenes. <laughs> That'd be uh, a weird thing to just have a horse extra for that that you don't use later. Yes. Yeah. Just redress them. Put them. Put them. And now you're a racehorse. It's fine. <laughs> That's why they did it. They didn't have the racehorse originally, but they needed a place for this actor. To... We cut back, so we cut very briefly to 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 Hackenbush's place. So it, it's it's kind of weird that like we have no sense of what it's like there, what what he is, what he does, what his business really is. Yeah, is he else. good? Is he bad? Yeah, is he uh, yeah. is he? Why is he leaving? Why why is he running? Why out is he door? immediately want to like bolt? <laughs> well, he does. He did talk about how uh, she never forgot that hayride. Uh, you know, so mm-hmm. he, there's a little something. Again, it's the continuing story of does Groucho actually like Margaret Dumont? Yeah, you yeah. don't know. She's in love with him, but is he in love with her? Apparently, they have a history. Some stuff happened in a hayride. 
And that horse probably saw stuff, too. <laughs> so we'd quickly cut back to the sanitarium. Oh, thank goodness. All right. Yes. <laughs> no, all this comedy. What's with... happening at the sanitarium? <laughs> we don't need to see Groucho making jokes about <laughs> Yeah, yeah we don't need that. Groucho's doing yeah. all these jokes. Yeah, yeah. How's the plot moving along? Yeah, let's see what's happening. Oh, she's being visited by Morgan. We've heard so much about him. We know he owns a hotel called Morgan Hotel. We know that's where Gil Stewart sings at his nightclub that's part of the hotel. What is he like as a person? Not very nice. Nope. Uh, he is the owner of the town's big hotel, uh, played by Douglas Dumbrell, who was a Canadian actor. Sounds like a Canadian name. And he feels like when you see him, and maybe it's just because he's one of those people that are of such a type, the big-voiced guy with the pencil mustache, it feels like every movie had that actor in sure. it. I mean, he was in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and he was, was in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Oh. So obviously he did do films, and you know, was so maybe I saw him in those movies, I don't, don't know. And this was not his only Marx Brothers film. Has he done one before, or will he do one again? It is said that he made an uncredited appearance in Monkey Business. Oh. And was to appear in one more. All right. Which I won't tell you. We will revisit that Mm -hmm. at a later date. Judy is heavily in debt to Morgan. Yeah. He offers her $5,000 for the sanitarium. (laughs) This is all traditional stuff. Yeah. Like, it's, you know... Uh, Jeez, to a guy who objected to the plotlessness of, of the early it's films. It's not plotlessness. It's, the, it's a plot. This is overly plotted. But it's just such a weird thing to have a sanitarium be the thing. It's just like, you know, we're going to have to shut down the old mill. I'll buy the mill for $5,000. No, no, you can't buy the mill. I'll buy that mill and it'll all shut down. But it's like, you'll buy that sanitarium. <laughs> That's what makes money nowadays. Sanitariums. No, it's was my dad's sanitarium. His sanitarium before. That's right. My great grandfather's sanitarium. Yeah, you don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps. We've had we've had a sanitarium in the family as long as as long as we've been standishes. Yeah, doesn't doesn't it feel like so sell it? And now you got five thousand dollars, which is infinite money back then. You're fine. No, it's only ten drunk driving charges. It's my it's my only way of figuring out money now in that time right. period. So Judy's business manager, Whitmore, played by Leonard Seeley, an mm-hmm. actor who did not do very much in that time period. He seems to appear, only appeared in a couple of their films. Maybe he went off to be a real business manager. Maybe he went, this That's is right. easy. I should actually do this should... on the reels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe he opened a sanitarium. Just went, boy, you know what? Here yeah, all the money's in sanitariums This is now. apparently, yeah, I'm going to start my own. So his reasoning is the debt will soon be due. And if she refuses, she might be left with nothing. Mm. So if it, she defaults on the loan then he can just take it back from her. Uh, Mrs. Upjohn announces with great excitement the arrival of Dr. Hackenbush. It's good to see that Margaret Dumont also still gets to, to welcome and announce the arrival yes, of... Yes, that felt nice. Yeah, take over for Zeppo, please. Yeah, she uh, she does the uh, t- uh, talking him up too much. That's yeah. great. He gets yeah. an intro. That's what you want. But doesn't it feel like, okay, what if you didn't have that scene of Groucho uh, with the with the horse... And yeah. like, just had him come in. Yeah, and we can learn that he's a. We he's, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be better. But I mean, it's better. It's better. It's better. Like here's because here, like, he's he's he is never in a position. He's never he never dominates anyone in the film because he's always he's always in a lesser position. He's always, he's a fraud. Yeah, he enters the film as a fraud. He knows he's a fraud. He's not a fraud like a business manager fraud yeah. like a night of the opera where he's just taking advantage we of... know he's a fraud mm-hmm. and not an arrogant fraud mm-hmm. like yeah he here he, he he's yeah. he's always on the on the back foot like yeah. Yeah. again it feels like the obvious thing to do here is ditch that vet scene have him come in 
you know, da 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 da. I'm Doctor Hackenbush. Sing yeah. that song if you want, because sure. it's a great song. Yeah. Which hopefully we'll have a clip of at some point. Uh, you know, I'm Doctor Hackenbush. Then, uh, you know, have because the 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 other guy has just gone. I've got this new horse. Yeah. Somehow. Hackenbush does something with the horse and is like, wait a minute, are you a vet? Yeah, I'm a vet. You're right. You caught me out, but keep, keep mum about that. Cause, you know, and, and then there's a reason to keep mum because if, uh, if, if they, if they blow this news, the whole, uh, sanitarium shuts down. Yeah. Fine. You get to the same place. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. there yeah. and it all ties together. You know, but in a town like, like sparkling, sparkling, uh, whatever the heck it's called, it's, a sanitarium-based economy like they have. It would really destroy the town and have it shut down. Well, they're in the sanitarium you, district. You That's true. You are competing with the other sanitarium. understand what's happening here. So, Judy decides to wait, hopeful that the arrival of uh, of Dr. Hackenbush will... With the arrival of Dr. Hackenbush, that Mrs. Upjohn will come through with, with, with the promised money. Yep. We also learn that Whitmore is in cahoots with Morgan, who is upset that Judy won't sell the sanitarium. Doesn't it, by the way, doesn't it also seem like there's no problem here? Because... You know, uh, they've set up ahead of time. She said before she'll give her the money if she needs it. All that she has to do is ask. Yeah. So there's no need to do this whole thing. Well, she's hinted that if, if Dr. Hackenbush is, becomes a doctor on... But that's the problem. Is like, you don't need... That makes no sense because we've already established, you know, she said she'd help me if I need it. Then later she's like, I'll give you the money if this guy works out. But no, or you could just ask her for it yeah. because you told me you, the only reason you're not doing it is you feel bad about about uh, asking her. Yeah. So it's just you having the nerve to instead we're kind of con this nice lady and 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 make her get medical treatments she doesn't need when all you need to do is just ask her for the money because you cause she'll give it to you. So oh, there's no problem. The only problem is your nerve to ask her for this thing. So anyway, that's uh, a bit of a flaw. Moving on. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, don't give an out to your problem the first time that we uh, introduce a character. And it's it, here's a scene between Whitmore and Groucho, or Whit Whitmore and Hackenbush, where we, we see, instead of the old Groucho double-talking a person into submission, you know, having a gun pulled on him by a gangster, and just, you know, not playing the game, here we have a scene where Whitmore, who's eager to... to prove that Hackenbush is a fraud yeah. and questions his credentials, asking him to went to medical school, and Hackenbush just changes the subject and does a lot of you know what I mean? He just kind of chickens out and kind yeah. of plays around and stuff like that. It it's isn't. also too obvious too early of let's like wait a minute, you sound like a fraud. Like, alright. Are we doing that immediately? Yeah. You know, you're not really a lady, you're just a guy in a wig. I'm like, alright. Just let it play out first for a while and then and then do the thing. But it's alright. <laughs> oh, so, so yeah, so upon hearing the call to post from the nearby racetrack, he quickly leaves the scene, escaping for now Whitmore's suspicions. We cut to the racetrack, where we see Stuffy, Harpo's character, coming off the track after winning a race. Stuffy is riding for Morgan, who is upset that Stuffy didn't throw the race as he was supposed to do. Yep, he gets beat up just like he did at the beginning of uh, yes. Night of the Opera. Yes. He beats Stuffy, uh, yes, as you say, like like uh, Laspari in A Night of the Opera. So, once again, another, uh, just an easy parallel between the two films so rather than create a, a sort of new way of having a villain they just sort of ah it's easy to do yeah you beat up harpo we hate you it's like kicking a dog yeah, yeah. And, and he does kick harpo in a comedic way that makes him go up very high yes <laughs> uh harpo escapes and hides in hi-hat stall under the hay 
Morgan's look from looking from stuffy, and we learn that Morgan can drive the horse wild just by speaking. Yeah. Now, can I also say, I, I, am I missing something, or does at any point Harpo in this movie get physical payback on this guy? No. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Because the the last guy that beat him up, Harpo Aspari, then took yeah. a mallet and repeatedly conked him on the noggin, like over and over again, which is satisfying. Yeah. You know, the comedic character, uh, you know, that's a broad physical comedy mm-hmm. guy, yeah. gets you back in his own style. That's great. And I know that there's payback later on, but it's in a traditional movie style. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. You punch Harpo and kick Harpo. You need some something physical to happen to you uh, to, to complete that cycle, that comedy cycle. Right. And that's a mistake. You punch Bugs Bunny, you're getting blown up later. <laughs> so Tony arrives, Chico's character arrives, uh, selling Tootsie Fritzie ice cream. Right. And Steffi greets well, to, uh, him. Well, they like each other. That's yes. the nice thing. Yeah, they're, they're friends. Steffi greets him by trying to steal some ice cream. Yes, they yes. come to do the, they do their usual greeting of walking past each other and, and then, uh, Steffi immediately goes to the, uh, to his cart and tries to get ice cream out of it. Tony discovers that Stuffy has been fired, and he recommends him to Gil as a jockey yeah. for. I like the hat. thing that uh, you know that Harpo is an honest man, but you got to keep your eye on. Him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Uh, the sheriff, played by Robert Middlemass, arrives to collect Hi Hat's feed bill. Tony gives him five dollars, which Stuffy promptly steals back out of the sheriff's p- pants pocket. Returning to Tony, who then gives it to the sheriff. The sheriff then pockets that five dollars. Harpo steals the five dollars, hands it to Tony, but finally. The sheriff puts it in his vest pocket, and then Harpo is so busy trying to reach down into his pocket, right to his elbow, and then finally the sheriff notices, what are you doing? And he pulls out his pulls out the uh, sheriff's sock. That's strange as a knot tied in it. Mm. Don't know why. Well, and, and again, this is a little bit of a, a subtle difference from how they would have done this in the past, whereas I think Chico would have been more oblivious to, you know, oh, there's a $5, and you just hand him the $5, and not totally aware of what Harpo, I think, would be doing. It's just like Harpo's giving him the money. He could maybe play play the con, but again, yeah. it feels like Chico is just the really brilliant con guy who's pulling this off on, on, on this guy, and I'm not 100% behind Chico being a genius. So the guy who plays the sheriff is, is interesting because he was actually a playwright and an actor. Uh, he graduated, also graduated from Harvard, like, uh, like, um, was it George Seaton who graduated? No, George Oppenheimer. Who, his most, uh, and he went into the insurance business. Then he decided he'd rather try acting. Hmm. And so he started acting and he, and he wrote plays. And his most well-known play was called The Valiant. And that was made into a film in 1929. And then remade as The Man Who Wouldn't Talk in 1940. And I have no idea what the film's about, hmm. sorry. Well, of course um, you wouldn't know. He didn't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the sheriff, so, yeah. After Stuffy pulls out the sock, the sheriff chases off Stuffy, allowing Gil and Tony to lock Hi-Hat in a stall, safe from repossession, I guess. But they they admit they need money. And so uh, Tony knows there's a good bet on a horse called Senup. So he heads over to find a suitable sucker. Cue the Chico and Grocho scene with Hackenbush arriving at the track and going to the rink, the uh, wicket to place his bet on Senup. He is interrupted by Chico, whose ice cream business seems to be a front for his job as a racetrack tote. Yeah, this just seems like it's a straight scene... There'd almost be a vaudeville scene. Like yeah. this is just a, it's just a bit, and it's uh, there. You go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, my, I think a little bit of my, as much as I do like this scene, uh, I think, I think the problem uh, with the film at this point is we've just seen Groucho uh, being scared. Yeah. And now he's taking a break to go play the ponies. Yeah. And now he's being conned. Yes. Yeah. He's always in a position of weakness. Yeah. And. The scene itself isn't isn't really a traditional Groucho uh, Chico scene either. 
in the sense that there's not a lot of devil talk in it. There's yeah, no right. there's no viaduct. Yeah. There's nothing like that happening in the but scene. But that's because Chico isn't dumb. Like in yeah. the, in the viaduct one, he's an oblivious character, and Groucho's commenting on the thing, and it it's just building in chaos. Yeah. And this one, Chico's got a game plan from the get go, and Groucho just keeps falling into it, mm. and then lightly commenting on the fact that, well, I got suckered again. I yeah. think I see where this is going. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm joining the book club. Are you selling bookshelves as well? You know, I, whatever whatever the build on the joke is, but you know, we're also on board with what's going to happen once you're three books deep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so yes. you don't have the chaos, and that's a bit of a drag. Yeah. It's a pretty, like I say, I enjoyed it as a kid, but now it feels like kind of an obvious scene that you're watching. And, you know, when you've seen something a lot, which I have seen uh, a lot of these Marx Brothers films a lot, you know, you know the jokes. So you're relying on their charm and their kind of enthusiasm to carry carry you through those scenes. You know, and it's the fun that they're having that make those scenes fun. And there's no real feeling of fun in the sequence. You know? Yeah, there's also in when when they do their double talk, cross talk, uh, back and forth in Night of the Opera. It's visually very interesting. Like they, a guy has just been knocked out. They put their feet on. Yeah, they yeah. act like they're ordering from a bar. Yeah. Uh, but but even so, they're backstage at an opera house, and it looks it looks neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it's just bland. It's a yeah. bland looking thing. So all you get is just their uh, voices and their talk, and it's not the most interesting talk. And yeah, uh, it's again, it's 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 absolutely fine. It looks like a if it was a comedy sketch on a TV show, you'd go, "This is fine." Uh, but yeah, I don't think it necessarily uh, adds much to the to the film. Yeah. So let's just go through the bit anyway. Sure. Uh, so yes, he goes. So uh, Hackenbush goes up to the wicket to place his bet on Sunup. He is interrupted by Chico. He persuades Hackenbush to to not throw away his money on Sunup, but buy a hot tip from Tony for a dollar. Hackenbush receives a piece of paper with the with the word. It's not even a word. It's just letters. Z-V-B-X-R-P-L written on it. After complaining to Tony that he can't read the word, Tony tells Hackenbush that he needs the accompanying code book. Yeah, last time I saw this, I was at the eye doctor. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Which is free, besides the $1 printing charge. Tony then sells Hackenbush a master code book, free except for the delivery charge. That's right, yeah. And I like that uh, Groucho says, well, what if I stand closer to you? Does, <laughs> is it a half race? Because I'll, I'll take another step away from you. Yes. No, that's no good. I just step away. Then, he's, then he also sells him a breeder's guide and four additional books, conning Hackenbush for $6, which he promptly places on Senup. <laughs> Hackenbush is forced to spend a further $10 to finally decode the horse's name, but when he goes to the wicket to place his bet on Rosie, he discovers that the race has been run and the winner was Sunup. An elated Chico collects his winnings, leaving Groucho to dump his pile of books into the ice cream cart and take over Chico's business. Right. With him now saying, Tootsie ice cream. I sort of made a note to myself, sort of the racetrack version of It Follows. Yep. I bet you're not going to find that in any books on the Marx Brothers. Well, maybe more recent ones. Yep. Uh, Judy's conversation, oh sorry, cut back to the sanitarium, because I know you were wondering what was going on there. Yeah, what's happening at the sanitarium? Well, Judy's talking to the switchboard operator. Okay. We've got to establish as a switchboard operator, because that gives us uh, entry into the next it scene. It does set things up for a scene. Yes. Alright, I'm all for that. Yeah. Good for, good for setups. She has a conversation with the switchboard operator, which establishes that Gil is still persona non grata. He's on the outs. It's a definite cold front facing old Gil. He is not welcome at the sanitarium. You can't come here and dry out, sir. Like I said, the scene establishes the switchboard operator. So Judy asks Hackenbush for a publicity photograph she can use to promote the sanitarium. This is another terrible scene <laughs> where Grocho is just abashed. And, oh, you don't you want to. You could have my footprints, but they're up, upstairs in my socks. Yeah. So a good joke, but it feels like, 
It just feels like... Oh, you're reacting to it like it's a good joke. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a good joke, but it's just like... It's, it's, a, da- it's a bit of a dad joke. <laughs> it's, but he's also... Well, I'm a dad, so it's fine. But so I can appreciate those jokes. But I feel like he's... Once again, he's in a situation of, of where he's behind the eight ball. He's never... Yeah. And he feels it. He's not behind the eight ball like he is in deck soup when the entire country's at war against another country and they're losing... He's not behind the eight ball. He's dressing up in all kinds of different costumes, in military costumes. He's not behind the eight ball on the horse feathers. Even though the football game, they're going to lose. No, no, they got a, a limited, a unlimited supply of footballs to place on the end zone and win the game. You know, like here, whereas picture in the newspaper might clue people into the fact that he's a quote unquote horse doctor, which is the weirdest thing in the world. Why not say vet? <laughs> it's horse doctor worse than a vet. It is a worse choice when you've got horses and you don't have them go to see the horses at any point. It just seems weird. It just is weird. Is it? Well, wait a second. Now, you've worked uh, as a farrier. You have a horse. Yeah. When you go to the horse doctor, are you just going to... You're not, you don't just go into... You don't a, go to the horse doctor anyway. The horse doctor comes to you. Okay, but here's the thing. You don't make house calls. You don't go to a vet... You don't go to a vet clinic and walk your horse in, right? No, no. So, when the doctor comes to you, yeah. does the doctor have a different name than, I'm the veterinarian? Because... No, he's a veterinarian. It's, it's a, the same veterinarian who looks after a cat... No, uh, the rest of the he, week. He is a large animal vet. Oh, and a small animal vet would look after cats and dogs and other things. Okay, big animal. And those are vet. two different practices that you would establish during your training. That you either want to go into a large animal veterinarian. Well, not necessarily, because the last time I took uh, my cat to a vet that was like a little bit, a little bit up north, had some extra procedures. Yeah. Uh, she she had an appointment later that day to look after a cow. Okay. So she was going after to look after that's, some farm that's animals. That's rare. Yeah. Most most vets specialize in one or the other. Okay. Uh, just because of because of equipment and things like that, right? Like, you know, like you don't want to spend like you you have a different ne- needs for a cat for cats and dogs in terms of the equipment that you would need compared to like a horse, where you need like right. a giant hoist and a table the size of a, of a well, truck. Let me ask you this, uh, just uh, comedically: What's funnier? Uh, I'm a veterinarian, okay, or I'm a horse doctor? Well, judging from my experience with a day of the races, neither. <laughs> okay. Like I said, an older or a, a younger Groucho, a past Groucho, yeah. would have brazened his way through the scene. He would have created all kinds of confusion and throw, you know, and stuff like that. And what s- I would have said is like... Instead past- of looking at the floor and going, oh, gosh. Yeah, a past Groucho would have had the photo taken, but you can't see his face in it because something's always like in front of it, right? <laughs> like he would have found That'd a way good. around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He almost confesses... You know, then there's the other thing. He almost confesses the truth to, to Judy. She almost like gives up the game right away. But of course, he realizes how much is depending on oops, depending on him and uh, and his relationship with Mrs. Upjohn. Hackenbush learns that Whitmore is trying to call the Florida Medical Board, so he calls Whitmore, posing first as an operator, which is good. I like this sequence. Yeah, this is a good, good scene. It's good chaos. Uh, then as a secretary, then as a Southern Colonel. Yeah, uh, which is all fun. And ha- constantly, while uh, the name Hackenbush is being yelled, he's like, "You know, you calling me?" And uh, <laughs> quiet out yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, first, he starts off with like a. By, Creating the idea there's a hurricane going on, so the so the he can't hear what Whitmore's saying, so Whitmore yells to be heard over the, and then he calls him on the intercom, quiet down in there, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, it's good. That feels like a scene that they rehearsed in front of an audience. I believe you need that yeah, for I the believe timing. Would, yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe you're right, and I believe it's a scene that was so minor that it didn't get m- monkeyed with very much. Whereas a scene like the examination scene or the bedroom scene was it, which were big scenes. I feel like those would have had people's fingers in them to improve them after the tour, you know. Uh, so. Uh, yes, he t- basically torments Whit- Whitmore until Whitmore f- hangs up in frustration. And doesn't say dope, but he does say something like gah! or something along those lines. Real sharp, you know, punctuation. But he doesn't solve the problem. 
Like, he doesn't create, like, he could have created a situation where he says, oh, yeah, he's perfectly fine. I'll send you the credentials. You know, we'll send them in the mail, da 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 you know, and create, give himself some breathing room instead of keeping the pressure on because Whitmore is not going to give up. He's, he just ends up phoning again anyway and getting the actual information. So he didn't help himself at all. He didn't actually, he just put it off by, by minutes. He didn't put it off by weeks or two weeks yeah. or whatever long you think the mail might take to come from Florida or you could have it feel like it would take that long. So Tony and Stuffy, who were listening at the window, have discovered that Whitmore is in league with Morgan, so they decide Stuffy should register as a patient to spy on him. Mrs. Upjohn, still being told that she is perfectly healthy, demands to see Hackenbush, who reassures her that she is incredibly ill. Tony and Stuffy enter the examination room. Hackenbush recognizes Tony, but he agrees to uh, examine Stuffy. While Hackenbush is examining Stuffy, Tony finds a letter thanking Hackenbush for saving a horse. Why is he carrying this letter around and leaving it in drawers and in a place he just came to? I don't know. That's a good question. And why we need that revelation is another question entirely. He is surprised, but realizes that the existence of the sanitarium is in, is in the hands of Mrs. Upjohn, and Mrs. Upjohn is in the hands of Hackenbush. So there's nothing he can do about it. By the way, uh, you've got a scene previously where Groucho is doing a series of voices. Yes. Right? A bunch of voices, interesting voices. Later on, we're going to get a little bit to the end, someone asks Groucho, can you do this person's voice? And he goes, no, but that person can. Yeah. And it's like, what if instead of that, we established that Groucho can do people's voices. Yeah. And then he can do it, and then we just get to it. Yeah. It seems like you're setting something up that, uh, yeah. You didn't pay off. Yeah. Uh, stuffy. So we have a pretty, I think this is a pretty good examination scene. I think I kind of enjoy it. Uh, I like, uh, some of the jokes are good. Some of it mm-hmm. was fun. Stuffy finds a hypodermic needle and stabs Hackenbush in the leg. Hackenbush's leg goes to sleep, and he leaves the examination room dragging one leg behind him. Tony and Stuffy follow. Later on, Tim Conway him. would do something similar. Yes. Yes, the doctor sketch. Or dentist sketch, I should say. Yeah. So then we cut to Gil at the stable. You're wondering what was happening with Hi-Hat. This is what's happening. Yeah, it's like, what happens uh, with the horse? Yeah. Gil uh, is at the stables training Hi-Hat. Tony comes and informs him that Hackenbush is a horse doctor. Gil should have said, oh, that's great, because I got Hi-Hat. He's <laughs> a horse. I'm a horse here. Instead, exactly. Instead, he says. Exactly. <laughs> instead, he kind of complains and says. And, you know, basically it's the same thing as Tony. We can't let the secret be known, but it's not going to be kept for long, so we need to figure out what to do. Uh, we need to get some money together to save the sanitarium. Yeah, like, if you're a horse, again, if you're a horse doctor, and maybe, I guess maybe everyone here is just good people who would never cheat or swindle, but it just feels like Hackenbush could drug all the other horses and uh, this horse would win, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, there's infinite things that would... It seems like you're setting up, but you never, again, the oh, twain will meet. There's lots of stuff like that, because we have uh, Stuffy uh, supposedly entering the sanitarium as a patient so he can spy on Whitmore, but after the examination scene, it's never mentioned again. Yeah. It doesn't come back again. It's like a weird dangling yeah. thing. All and setups, s- no payoffs. And same, just to jump ahead at myself now, uh, it's same with the scene, the so-called bedroom scene with Flo, where she's so outraged, she says, you dirty double-crossing snake, I'll get you. And then she's never seen in the movie again. <laughs> So it's just weird. Like, why have all these little moments where you create yeah. storylines and then you just drop them? There's a scene you don't see where she gets turned into a horse. It's oh. a magical uh, well, spell has, and a wizard. And he has a horse doctor. Yeah, that's right. He turns people into horses. <laughs> could give her a pill to make her think she's a horse. Well, he does have a pretty silly name. He could be a, he could be a wizard. If that's one thing I've noticed about wizards is their silly names. Any Groucho Marx character name would work in Hogwarts. Yes. Equally well. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, <laughs> and in the reverse, pick a pick a teacher from Hogwarts. That'd be a good name for Groucho Marx in a movie. 
I think you're right. Yeah. Here comes General Dumbledore. That's <laughs> great. Works. It's fine. Is that something you can think yeah. of? Who else? I can't think of anyone else. Mad Eye Moody. <laughs> That's, that's, that'd be a second. That's, that'd be one of the other characters. That's a, that's a sequel to Mad Cat Mary Mooney. Is uh, Mad Eye? Okay. Um, then the Tony and Gil talk about how they're going to need money to feed Hi Hat, and then they're going to earn some money that night singing and entertaining at the water carnival. Sure, that's how you earn money for your horse to save the sanitarium. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sing. That's that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So the sheriff arrives. You don't just. Whoop. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, say, say it. You don't just sing and make money that way to save the sanitary. But yeah, I know. You yeah, get, yeah. Get it to bet on the horse and bet on the horse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Can you bet on your own horse? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because you're guaranteed to be the most honest person in the track at that moment. You're the least likely person to have dug your horse. Although I guess you could use amphetamines. So I forget what I just said. Yeah, or you could just uh, make sure that, know that your horse is bad, and at the very least, you've like reduced the yeah. odds now, so you know at least your horse is a dud, <laughs> and you can bet on one of the other horses. Yes, you are uh, you are allowed to bet on your own horse. Okay. <laughs> for all for all Seems that. Seems weird. It does seem weird. You're right. But let's cut. Oh, sorry. The sheriff comes. Oh. To collect high hat, because no one's paid the feed bill. <laughs> and I'm taking this horse away. Right. So he takes the horse, but they manage to substitute Snuffy. They put the halter on, on Snuffy. Stuffy, I mean. And Stuffy walks horse-like uh, behind the sheriff, who then turns his head for some reason. Oh, because Stuffy keeps looking behind him for no reason at all. He should pl- play the part a little better. And he doesn't. And then he gives away the game. And then he gets chased, and they all run away. It's okay, good, though, because then they're at the water carnival that night. Okay. All's good. So, the carnival opens with a ballet. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't open the ballet. It opens with Gil singing. Yeah. He sings a song. He sings uh, Blue Venetian Waters. Sure. Which kind of relates, I guess, to the gondolas and stuff of this it's water. It's a black and white movie. It's good that they let you know what color sure. the water is. <laughs> so, uh, he, he sings it to Judy, mm-hmm. who could who could care less. She, he sings it to her. Well, she's got sanitarium business on her mind. <laughs> That's right. Then we get the ballet. We get a large group of dancers. Yeah. Can I just say, watching the sequence pretty carefully, not the best group of dancers in the world. There's a lot of like faking it, not synchronized, sort of leaping, kind of half half haphazardly doing their parts. Uh, the lady who dances is good, Vivian Fay, uh, who was, I assume was a real ballerina or at least a da- oh, it's gotta be, yeah. at least a dancer with some experience. Yeah. She's pretty good. She does a good job. That'd be a weird thing to not cast a ballerina as the head ballerina. But the ones behind her is, uh, aren't that great. Okay. Uh, the ones that are dancing, the large, the large group dances. The sort but to of be honest, even if they were great. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> it's true, true. So her dance is followed by a little song by the Crinoline Choir. A group of ladies singing sweetly to us in that very interesting close harmony of that time period. Hackenbush, Mrs. Upjohn, and Judy are sharing a gondola. Right. Hackenbush is lured away by the Thelma Todd-like flow, uh, played by Esther Muir. Interesting thing about Esther Muir is that she was once married to Busby Berkeley, who did the choreography oh. on The Coconuts. All right. Uh, and her first film role was in Buster Keaton's film Parlor, Bedroom, and Bath. Uh, she impressed the Marx Brothers during the pre-filming tour. She went on the tour with them. One of the few, ac- one of the only actors who did, who was in the movie. Mm. Uh, she proved herself to be a real tough cookie, though. Like could put up with their, put up with their ways and their, uh, their, their uh, antics, and could give it back to them. Um, she paid. She once paid uh, the dancers to uh, paint the toenails of the sleeping Marx Brothers red. So they had to explain that to their wives. So Gil visits Judy. He tells her not to rely on Hackenbush. But Judy's hands are tied by Mrs. Upjohn's fascination with Hackenbush. Gil admits that Hi-Hat is not doing well, and Judy is moved to a reconciliation. Hackenbush and Mrs. I, want to say, I always want to say Hackenbush. I want to say like, sure. uh, Chico. Hackenbush and Mrs. Upjohn go out onto the dance floor, 
where Hackenbush attempts to keep her happy while still making whoopee with Flo. Yep. And it's like that, change your partner! Yeah, I, I really just love Groucho's dancing. Mm. It's just it's great. So it's antic, great, yeah. great, fun dancing, yeah. 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 yeah to, and yeah, change your partner is very good. Yeah, it's a good, fun little bit. Uh, Tony and Stuffy make their way onto the podium where Tony plays a piano solo before making a break for it. Yeah, really Avoiding capture by the sheriff. Yeah. Who they earlier avoided and caused to fall in the water, so he's extra mad at them. Stuffy then attempts to play the piano. Which I always think is like such a bold choice after Chico has been so amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, here we go. <laughs> but again, it's, uh, it's very, fun. very good. It's yeah. a fun little bit. Yeah. He, uh, plays a bum note and then keeps trying to like work around it and pound the piano. And as, as he's working on this bum note, the piano starts to fall apart until all that's left is the actual harp, which that's what that part is called in the piano. The harp is left and he plays that. So we know that he's not really playing the harp because he can't actually play a piano harp that way, I guess. But that's all right. The interesting thing about Stuffy's uh, harp part here is that he was going to play this piece by Rachmaninoff. And he was all excited about playing it. He would just sing it all the time and he was all ready to play it. And then they discovered it would cost $1,000 for the rights to perform it in a movie. Really? And MGM said, nix. X-nay on that. Ah. Yeah. If only you waited. Public domain. <laughs> only waited what? If only you waited. Rachmaninoff must be public domain by now. Yes. I think you're right. Yes, he'd be more than... Um, so yes, he plays his part. He does his he does his uh he plays his harp, which turn, then is just a reprise of uh, Gill's song "Blue Venetian Waters." Mm-hmm. So rather than the Rachmaninoff we wanted to do, he just gets to play this song that we heard five minutes ago again, which is kind of the same in um, Night of the Opera. He does a he does a harp version of "Alone," the song that that Gill and or not Gill but Ellen Jones and Kitty Carlisle sing to each other. Oh, okay. He just replays it again on the harp. And again, harp on the harp is great. Yes. Uh, then he escapes into the water. We learn that Flo is working with Whitmore to entrap Hackenbush. They plan to lure Hackenbush to her room so that they can break in on them with Mrs. Upjohn, causing her to insist on Hackenbush's dismissal. Now, that I don't think that's... Is that the actual line from the movie? Or is someone... Because actually, she's going to his room. Unless they just changed it to his room without telling us. Yeah, well, he was doing the thing uh, over, um, uh, uh, you know, Dumont's... Sh- yeah, sh- yeah. Where it sounded like he was talking to both of them and just like, you know, I want to see you tonight. You know, see me in my room at, uh, at midnight. Midnight, I tell you. And then, and, uh, Mark Dumont says, I will. What? You're going against your doctor's orders? I told you to be asleep by 10. How dare you? Midnight. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's good. That's a, that's a funny bit. Him, him, uh, courting the two ladies simultaneously is, mm-hmm. is good. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Yeah, there's still, it's good stuff. I mean, let's face it. Even though that whole musical part of that sequence is a arch A great war. time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Twice or three times if you really want to, because you'll have the time. You'll have a time. You know what? Go next door. See another movie. At yeah, the, that's at, right. And I know that there weren't multiple movie, the, uh, you know, multiplexes back then, but yeah. you have time to walk to a totally different movie theater. Yeah. Go see that movie, well, was, then come back. There would have been like a movie theater row, and you could go and sure. just walk to the next building. And, and even if there wasn't, go across town. Come back. This musical <laughs> number will still be playing. <laughs> we guarantee it. Uh, Stuffy overhears this, and we are treated to that to the great scene, the mime scene, yep. which I, I really like. I love the sequence, but I... F- as I said before, I feel like it starts to undermine what Harpo's character is. Yes, it does. It takes away the magic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because before this, I always feel like at any time he could talk if he wanted to. He just doesn't feel like it. He doesn't need to talk to you. Yeah. He'd rather like whistle at you, he'd rather honk a horn, because this is who he is. But now we learn that if he needs to get information to someone, he really can't get information to he them. Has he has to, to do, do charades, a, yeah. do a form of charades. Uh, and, and he clearly can't write it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it, it is the weird thing. Like, when you make it that Harpo can't talk, yeah. it's very different. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I feel like this movie kind of it changes his character quite a bit. 
uh, this movie. It starts to change its character, makes it more sentimental and less less uh, impish. You know, whereas in the other 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 movie, he's sort of like a gremlin that's there in the in the midst of everything, and he can be a good gremlin and help things work, or he can be a bad gremlin and not help things work. Mm-hmm. It's up to him. And uh, this and this film takes takes away that aspect of his character quite a bit. But we do get a great scene after the the mime sequence when they re, when Chico after saying guessing things like Buffalo Bill ice skating and uh, he they go to uh, Grocho's room. And they're going to try and interrupt what's happening there. So Flo has arrived, and I do like this sequence again. I think this mm-hmm. is a great sequence. I love, I love uh, the little things, you know, putting the chair for her and her saying thank you, and him going thank you. Yeah, the thank you stuff is great. It's really good. Um, and then having the having, uh, I, 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 I enjoy Grocho and Harpo coming in as uh, as house detectives. Is that what the first yeah. thing they come in? No, as no, house no. Detectives? House Go. detectives comes to the end. Well, they they are they're also uh, they're also wallpaper hangers. Uh, they come in earlier as something else, but yeah, House Detectives comes a little later. Well, that's right. They just come in as themselves. They didn't. They attempt. They attempt to interrupt Hackenbush and Flo. Right. But they won't listen. So then they return as detectives, complete with hounds. Chico doing an Italian, doing an Irishman, which I think is kind of interesting. And then uh, Harpo doing his best Sherlock Holmes. Now let me ask you about a joke. Uh, there's one where like uh, I think uh, either Harpo or Chico sits on her lap, and then the next one sits on sits on their lap. And then they slap in the thing like Groucho, come join us. And he goes, three men on a horse, not for me. And I'm like, three men on a horse. Is that does that mean something? Is that a reference to anything like uh, pop culture at the time? I don't. It just feels like three men on a horse, not for me. What if that was a movie or a? a, a it feels book? like it's something. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Let's let's pause briefly. All right. All right. So uh, we did a quick look up. On, on Three Men and a Horse, just to see if it was an actual reference to the time period. And it was a uh, 1936 comedy starring no one that I've ever heard of. Frank McHugh, Carol Hughes, Sam Levine, Ellen Jenkins, and Teddy Hart. The um, idea of the movie is a milk-a-toast character. Do you know what a milk-a-toast character yep. is? Yeah. I always that would be a Clark Kent type. Car- yes, an ineffectual type. That's right. Uh, greeting card writer Erwin Trowbridge gets into a fight with his wife, Audrey, and wanders into a bar to drown his sorrows. There he meets three gamblers and endears himself to them with his knack for p- picking winning horses. The gamblers, realizing that Irwin's skill is indeed useful, hold him hostage in the bar for their own enrichment while both his wife and his boss search for him frantically. There you there go. We go. So that's his reference. So that that's fine. Yeah. It takes us some of the sting away from calling uh, Estramir a horse as well. Yeah, there was a reference at one point to, um, to Harpo. I think it might have been Harpo's examination. And I looked up what it was, you know, uh, it was some reference to a big game hunter that uh, would stuff animals and uh, said something about Harpo being, you know, you know, you'd see him on a da-da-da, this guy's, uh, you know, this guy's show or this guy's you know, radio program or this okay. guy's something. But okay. yeah, I forgot what it was exactly, like Frank Buck or something like that. And it was like, yeah, you'd see him with a Frank Buck. And I'm like, what was Frank Buck? It's like, oh, he would uh, shoot and stuff. Someone's like, okay, he's got a face like he's a taxidermid animal. It's yeah, like, yeah, that yeah. makes good sense. That is. Blank stare. Yep. So, uh, Grocho takes a steak that he was going to have for dinner with, he, he and Flo were going to have for dinner, Put throws it into uh, Chico's pocket. Chico then is attacked by the dogs. <laughs> yes. Harpo's dragged around the room by the yeah, dogs. Right. and then uh, they Keep both... chewing on him when you run out of the, that steak. <laughs> <laughs> they run out of the room and then they're gone. Uh, then, they return again, this time as, as, uh, Decorators or paper hangers. 
uh, and they start to decorate the room by hanging wallpaper in a very messy manner, man. Yes. Now, is this uh, is this before or after the hold me closer? Mm, yes, yes. Where, yeah, she says, she says, hold uh, me closer, after. closer, closer. If I was any closer, I'd be behind you. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird dynamic there too, where Groucho is the seducer normally. Yeah. But then you've got a woman who's trying to seduce Groucho. Yeah. And so, how's that work? Do they? Why don't they get going? You know, uh, and yeah. It's, and it's like. He's but just, he's making fun of her because he can't stop with the thank you, thank you. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, he knows she's a bit of business and, uh, he's got, he's got to make fun of her. You know, he'll go for the joke more than he will for the romance. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that could be it. And just the fact that it doesn't matter w- what situation he's in, whether he's trying to woo Margaret Dumont, his, his fl- flirtation involves a great deal of insulting no matter what. So yes. it's just a part of his character, I guess. Uh, at least part of his character they leave intact for this film. Yeah. Thank goodness. Uh, so yes, yeah, so they show up as, as decorators and they begin hanging wallpaper on the wall and, and hanging it over Grocho and Flo, um, until they're completely. Un- Everyone's covered. Yeah, yeah, everything's covered. You can't see anyone. At that moment, Whitmore brings in Mrs. Upjohn. Oh. His, his plan to reveal dun, Flo dun, there. Dun. Yes. And hopefully she will leave outraged at the perfidy of, uh, Hackenbush. And, but then Flo is nowhere to be seen. Whitmore, of course, doesn't believe what's happening. He clears away a bunch of the wallpaper. No, she is gone. She's completely gone. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Upjohn is uh, is upset, of course, to be fooled in this way by Whitmore as she yeah. leaves. And then uh, it's also very late. It's past midnight. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. And then uh, Flo is released from her hiding place in the sofa. And as I said before, she uh, threatens. Grocho, or Grocho is some horrible thing that's going to happen that never happens. We never see her in the movie again. <laughs> so it's very strange. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Harpo Cisco bite her with a whack of the brush on her on her behind and a bit of wallpaper left there for her to, to as a memory of her experiences. The next day, Mrs. Upjohn begs Hackenbush's forgiveness, which he grants, provided right. He's she doing the big uh, looking looking away from yeah, her thing, yeah. yeah, which is funny. Which provides uh, grant provided she undertakes Judy's debts. Gil brings the necessary papers for her to sign. Yeah, which, again, she was willing to do at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. We've gotten nowhere plot-wise. Good job. Okay. Yes. Really, you could take the first 10 minutes of the film and the last 15 minutes of the film, and you would have all you need to have the film. <laughs> That's right. So then we have a new wrench thrown into this cake. <laughs> yeah. This over-egg cake. We have Dr. Steinberg from Vienna comes. Sure. Sort of a throwback to Dr. Walzer, who was in, would have been in, in the other films, played by Sig Ruman, who was in, uh, A Night of the Opera, played, uh, played, uh, Gottfried. Sure. In that film. Good. He returns as Steinberg from Vienna, who questions Hackenbush's qualifications as a doctor and his diagnosis of Mrs. Upjohn's double blood pressure. Yep. Once again, instead of brazen it out, instead of make fun of him, instead of mocking everyone. Yeah. Grocho tries to leave. Yeah, taking him down a notch for everything. Yeah, and making him look nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's also, hey, here comes another character. What's he doing? He doesn't believe that the... All right, everyone. Uh, we've already been through this. Yeah. Something yeah. else. How about instead... I'm just, again, sorry to keep throwing in plot lines, <laughs> but because we've already got characters doing that. Yeah. Here's the doctor from Vienna. Oh, yes. Well, uh, I've heard great stuff about you. Listen, I'm going to be examining a patient this afternoon. I would love you to assist me, and you could show me your wonderful techniques. Not, I don't believe you. Yeah. I do believe you. Yeah. That gets me the same place, but we're now we're playing a different beat. Yeah. That would be actually really good. Yes! Because then you're asking for assistance all the time, and, and, and building on things instead of sure. you know, rejecting it. And what it's they, not hard. Yeah. 
And what they could have done is then stage it's so push get rid of the whole spy thing with with Stuffy and use him as a as a decoy patient that that uh, Grouch is going to work on. That's right. That would have been good. Oh, that was brilliant. You should have written this movie. So, despite oh sorry, Hackabush prepares to run off, but he's persuaded to stay and face the doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see in the room that Stuffy is tearing up Hackenbush's uh, mattress for the straw in it to feed Hi Hat, the horse <laughs> who's living in the closet in this sanitarium now. Uh, Feels like they might have some oats in the kitchen if you really looked for it. I think like food at the sanitarium would be kind of bland and yeah. oatmeal-y. Yeah. Just throwing that you out. might have that there. I don't know. Yeah. If uh, you be really careful what you feed the horses, by the way. Hackenbush. <laughs> so, so feed him mattress hay. That's yeah. That's what you're saying. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty dry. It's probably, it's probably better for him than anything else. Uh, so then we go to the examination room. Hackenbush attempts to stall uh, with much washing of hands. Yep. Uh, Funny hand washing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, Tony and Stuffy arrive, dressed in white overalls, apparently bored from a gas station, cell service station. Mrs. Upjohn is manhandled in the examination chair by Tony and Stuffy. There's a lot of business going back and forth, swinging sweet out of line yeah. while washing their hands. Yeah, that's that's good. It's weird when they enter, uh, Chico and Harpo, yeah. and Groucho is, I thought you guys weren't going to come to this. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. we did. Uh, what? What? Yeah. What? For, you feel like Groucho should be happy to see them. Yeah. Or it's just... Why are they all at odds? And then, but then they're not at odds. Now they're all working together. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we have much silliness. Doctor Steinberg orders yes. an X-ray, but before anything more can be done, Stuffy turns on the sprinklers, and all three of them make the, uh, their escape in snow. Yeah, good jumping on that horse. <laughs> yes, that good was impressive. really good. Yeah, yeah. We next see them holed up in an old barn. This is our park bench moment. This is a sad moment. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Dejected and feeling guilty and over the disaster. Drying the wet sock by dangling from his toes over a fire, <laughs> surrounded by dry hay. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> yes, very dangerous. Yeah. Every barn you'll ever go to in your entire life will have a no smoking and no a fire. A nice fire pit in the middle signs, while you're yeah, drying yeah. your socks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Judy arrives with some blankets. She bravely attempts to accept that Morgan will soon own the sanitarium. It breaks down in tears. She and Gil watch some children playing outside, and Gil sings, Tomorrow is Another Day. Or, uh, as the song should be called, Tomorrow is a Boring Day. <laughs> Stuffy then begins to play a small tin flute. He is, let me just say, strangely, taken to be Gabriel, the angel, by the poor black community that live around the barn. This is a very strange sequence to me. It has some great singing, great dancing. I just assumed that, uh, that that song was just a song that was like a popular song, and they were... Do it. But do that part really, of it is not. You really think that he, they, they were believing that he was uh, Gabriel? Well, the, yeah, it's not part of any part of the song. It's Okay. So it's just a weird thing. Like, why are they taking him as Gabriel? Like, it's just weird. Huh. All right. I, yeah, I didn't, I, I just thought this is a song of the time, so they're just yeah, joining yeah. in. Yeah, No. Yeah. Who that man? Do-do-do-do. Um, the, uh, okay, then there's a musical interlude with uh, some spirited swing dancing to the song All God's Chillin' Got Rhythm. Which uh, is uh, which they'd used before in Duck Soup. No, so no, it's a different song. All God's Children Got Guns? Yeah. Wasn't a parody of All God's Children Got Rhythm? No, it's a parody of All God's Children Got R- Wings, which is a gospel song. All God's Children Got Rhythm was written especially for this movie. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's okay. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Ivy Anderson actually was a singer with uh, the Duke Ellington band. She sang with them through the 30s into the early 40s yeah. when she had to quit because she had chronic asthma. She had to quit in 1942 from singing, and she actually died of it seven years later. There's a, there's some yeah beautiful singing in this. There's some beautiful mm-hmm. dancing in this. Yeah. Uh, tonally, it's it sets up something that you go, what? Uh, which is, 
you know, we've we we sh- we showed the fancy swanky party with the ballet and yeah, all this, yeah, yeah. and all the white folks doing the white folks stuff, and then it's like. Was this just over here? There's like everyone, everyone who's here's the shanty town. Here's the shanty town. Everyone lives everyone. around the barn. Are, are these? But do these yeah. folks? Do they work at the racetrack? Do they work at the sanitarium doing anything? Sure. They could. Well, they all. We haven't seen anybody. We haven't seen any black people because it's a, we haven't a seen movie. any black people. Right. Yeah, it's a movie from 1937. You only see black people if they're a, a maid or a no, servant. No, but that's right. But you would see that yeah. in a sanitarium. Like yes. you could establish that, like these are the folks that work at the sanitarium. Yeah. But there's also the hoity toys that go off to see the ballet and whatever. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, Harpo, who you love because he's the everyman, is entertaining these folk who are the common folk. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that's uh, that's kind of can play as something beautiful and 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 good. Hmm? But it's just weird that we just introduced this community. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Yeah. And then they're all doing this big musical number, yeah. but. Uh, you know, it all leads to, you know, the only black face you'll ever see the, the Marx Brothers do. And you're like, okay, so here's my, here's my thing on, on the black face. Sure. Is if you've got to do black face and you don't, but if you do, I think they did it probably in the best way you could, uh, in that there's actual people there who are performing and you get to see as people. Yeah, they're trying to mingle and they're, yeah, and and they're and human as full beings. people. Yeah, you're they're... not just doing a minstrel show out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, a parody of, you know, they're, they're there, yeah. they're there amongst, I think it feels like, cause I was, I was thinking about this and I felt like the, it's almost the Apu problem with the Simpsons where it's not that Apu is a terrible character. It's just that at the time and since then, there's been no other, uh, characters who are Indian to characters balance that. to balance it out. Yeah, if yeah. there were, we'd be fine. Yeah. And, and back then, this was how people were portrayed. Yeah. Uh, but you do give everyone a lot of focus. You do give show everyone's talents. No one's made fun of for who they are or how they look. Uh, so I uh, sound like I'm justifying and I'm justifying. <laughs> but again, I think like if you're going to do this, yeah. and again, you don't have to do this. But if you do do this, it's like a real quick uh, bit. And I think it's done as well as could be done. Yeah. Um, Harpo's half. Yeah, I have two. Frank um, Gorshany. Uh, in Star yeah, that's, Trek, that's kind of funny. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Um, I feel I feel about the scene that two ways. One is that yes, this is a stereotyping black people. You know, it's giving them and you, none of them are educated. It has that uneducated black voice, which existed at the time. I'm sure this is based in some sort of reality, but it's also based in stereotype. Yeah, the, the kids are rolling dice. They're playing craps. They're shooting craps, yep. which is a stereotypical, you know, thing that. While black the, people are while the adults did. are seeing yeah. spirituals, yeah, that's right. Uh, in the in the house, yeah, in the house yeah. it's all it is all the stereotypes. That but is absolutely true. On the other side, how often in films of this period do we get to see actual black entertainers? Yeah, get to show their skills it's off to people very in a big nice movie showcase for it, and we get. Ivy Anderson, the big guy who's dancing is amazing. Yes, doing the splits, the splits and stuff like that. It's fantastic. Great. We get um, uh, they're called Whitey's Lindy Hoppers. They're a group of performers that they're kind of a, a rotating group of people who would perform in like various different units. They're like not just one group, but several different groups that would tour around and, and dance. Uh, that were formed by this guy whose name was Herbert Whitey White, mm-hmm. uh, and. They also performed in Hell's the Poppin' in 1941, so they were still around. I think they broke up in 1942 uh, when the war, when America entered the war, and a lot of the a lot of the performers were drafted. So he kind of had to stop doing it then. But yeah, I mean, that is some great dancing, some yes. really, and not just great dancing, but for the first time in the movie, some people having fun. 
mm. which we haven't seen yet. We haven't had that moment of Grocho watching Harpo eat his breakfast and use uh, Grocho's or use uh, Chico's tie as part of in his yeah, pancake. Yeah, I think I mean the and close, be smiling at it. The closest having, is I think Groucho dancing earlier, yep. just like just, yeah, just having a good time sure. and letting loose. Sure, that'd be the closest. Yeah, but most of the time in the movie, no one's having any fun. Everyone's worried. Everyone's trying to save a sanitarium. Yeah. Everyone's trying to prevent someone from learning that someone is this and where the horse is and what. And it's a, and again, it is a stereotype, but we're broke but happy. You know, yeah. you're trying to get money through this whole thing. Yeah, I guess to save the sanitarium. <laughs> um, well, but like, a, maybe a lot of these people would be out of work if the sanitarium. Closes. And and, and here is the other thing that I thought, and you know, again, I keep repeating. You don't have to do this, but, you know, uh, is I do like when you finally do get to the end of the movie, yeah. a lot of these folks are there. There's a mix. Strangely, but yes. It's, it's strange. It's strange, but it's, yeah. but it's good. Yeah. It's like, okay, so we're, we're bringing, it's not just, we're using you for this. Okay. You're done now. Bye. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's great. Now we got to just go back to this world <laughs> yeah. of this weird, yeah, uh, white bread <laughs> world. Yeah. No. No people of any of any other ethnicity. Yeah, where really rich ladies yeah. uh, are being catered to hand and foot because they think they're sick, but they're not. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. someone here is sick, but uh, you're not getting any treatment anyway. Anyway, the rich people get all the stuff, and yeah. uh, we're trying to cater to her and and make her happy. Yeah, yeah. there's two well, two things. One, duck soup, where they they do a minstrel like song with all God's children got guns does have a minstrel like sound right. to it, but they don't do it in blackface. They do not. They just do it just as themselves. They do a right. little bit of the motions of the, you know, with the jazz hands and stuff like that. But they don't, they don't play it up. They don't go blackface and stuff like that. In this movie, they have blackface, but they don't play blacks. They're just, just trying to disguise themselves. Yeah, they're in a not crowd. doing, they're not actually doing minstrel yeah. stuff when they're just when, trying to hide in a group yeah. of people. And it, as you say, they don't really need to do it. It's perfect. You know, it would have been perfectly fine without it. They I think. never do it again. They never do it again. Yeah. And you know, they do something funny with it, with 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 uh, Harpo's half and half. Uh, and I'm thing. again, I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm looking at like everything that was around at the time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see a Looney Tunes cartoon where some character hasn't <laughs> done this. Yeah. And it and you know even if you think like you're getting away clean, the very last scene you'll see all of a sudden Porky Pig. Uh, changes into blackface, and you're like, "What's why is Porky in blackface? Yeah, yeah. What's going on?" But yeah, I think, uh, yep, this is uh, that's the thing, and then other things. But there's a lot of good to the performances, and good on seeing those performances. There I hope everyone go. did well, and I'm glad they were in Hell's a Poppin'. <laughs> yeah, they're really good. In Do you think? Poppin'. Would you recommend that people see Hell's a Poppin'? I would. Uh, it's an odd. It's an odd flick. It's an odd flick. It's a. It's a zany movie. Yep. It has no particular plot line. It was based in a in a Broadway show that was a review show. Yeah. Let's say what the very first scene you're going to see is all these people dancing on some stairs, really elegant. It looks like an old timey musical. Uh, then the stairs collapse and everyone goes to hell. Yeah. And then that's where the movie starts. Yeah, so fun. if that sounds like your kind of thing, yeah, it's a good, uh, that's that's it's that a good movie. film. But it's really hard to see. I've only seen it once, and that was a long time ago. I don't know if it's on. Maybe it's on YouTube. Oh, is it on YouTube yeah, now? I believe so. I've seen it recently, so mm. yeah. I'll have to watch it on YouTube. Yeah, I saw it many, many years ago because a guy I met, a friend of mine, um, he had it on VHS. So he taped it off television. And I think I saw it one more time on, on, on CBC one night, but that's it. It doesn't seem to show up very often. Not okay. on TCM or anywhere while else. You're, uh, while you're uh, uh, talking more, I will just make sure that we're not lying. Sure. Um, you do that. I will. So, so Hackabush, Tony and Stuffy, uh, sorry. It's on YouTube. All this fun, it is. Okay, cool. Yeah. All this fun is interrupted by the arrival of Whitmore, Morgan, and the sheriff bearing proof that Hackenbush is a fraud. Hackenbush, Tony, and Stuffy attempt to escape by wearing axle grease, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the fracas in the barn, 
Shades of uh, Monkey Business. Hi-Hat becomes en- <clears throat> uh, enraged by the sound of Morgan's voice and begins attacking the cart that Morgan's standing on. Ah, let's just let's reestablish that. S- yes, it's a good, good thing. Stuffy leaps. It's a good thing, except it's a dumb thing. We'll talk about why it's a dumb thing in a bit. You also could, uh, at that point, maybe have the horse doctor explain why this is. But, you know, never mind. <laughs> He's a horse doctor. It doesn't matter. Okay, moving on. Stuffy leaps onto Hi-Hat and jumps over the barn door. The others are able to evade capture and stand outside the barn. Strangely, stand outside the barn just after they escape. They're just kind of standing outside. Like, should you guys run away? <laughs> but they run out, stand outside the barn watching Hi-Hat carry Stuffy across a field, revealing himself to be a natural steeplechase horse. That's what Gil says. He's a natural steeplechase horse. The scene ends with Stuffy being launched by the sudden stopping of Hi-Hat through a billboard. Which kills him, and then we have a Dick Francis movie, <laughs> the investigation of who killed Stuffy. <laughs> the next day, finds Hackenbush, Tony, and Stuffy at the racetrack for the big race. Now, okay, I watched the film twice, yeah, and I do not remember them ever mentioning a big race coming up. <laughs> it just suddenly is the next day, there's a big race. Right. And suddenly, it's the no big race. And it's no longer a racetrack, a regular racetrack. Now it's a steep, steeplechase track. Ah. It seems very odd. Those aren't really, usually, they're not interchangeable. <laughs> in my experience, anyway. If, this is a busy town. <laughs> yeah, they've got many racetracks going on. Uh, and the finest sanitarium. And the- so we have a, a good bit with the, with, uh, the binoculars. With uh, Yeah, split hacking. them in two. Yeah. So Morgan has a lot riding on the race, and he wants his horse to win, and he's not taking any chances that mm-hmm. Hi-Hat's going to show up. Oh, Morgan. He has guards posted at all the gates. Good for learn. him. There's no way of that horse sneaking in. No way. Unless. Only. Okay. Killing Judy. Attempt to sneak Hi-Hat onto the racetrack in a disguised sanitarium ambulance. Stuffy leaves the others to join them so he can ride Hi-Hat in the race. Unfortunately, Hi-Hat hears the sound of Morgan's voice and makes a disturbance, revealing Gil and Judy's plans. Well, end of movie. Judy's Roll a- credits. Wait, but Judy's able to hide in the crowd. Oh. But Gil is captured uh, and, makes, uh, and locked up in the ambulance with Hi-Hat. Which, by the way, not safe. If you have a horse that reacts badly to someone's voice, don't lock him in an enclosed space with, another, with a person. <laughs> That's not a good idea. The sheriff drives off with Hi-Hat and Gil. Hackenbush, Tony, and Stuffy now must attempt to delay the start of the race so Stuffy can hopefully ride Hi-Hat. So then we get a lot of business with them turning on some mysterious fans that are at the racetrack that blow everyone's hats onto it. They have an unlimited amount of saddle soap that apparently acts like axle grease and everyone tumbles off their horse onto the ground. <laughs> um, and yes, they move a fence to, to, uh, to create a detour in the track. So, yes. Meanwhile... Meanwhile, um, Judy fakes a road accident. The sheriff stops to help her, and they trick him into driving off while they sneak away with Hi-Hat. Very clever. Gil has disguised Hi-Hat by hitching him up with another horse to a water wagon. He manages to successfully sneak onto the racetrack grounds where he meets Stuffy. Stuffy, pursued by two policemen who have jumped onto the back of the water wagon, uh, drives out towards the start, starting, starting gates or starting yeah. line. Stuffy detaches them by turning on the water. Killing them both. <laughs> Yes, it's Killing true. them both instantly. At the very least, breaking their backs. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, there was an ambulance nearby. That's true. able to take them yeah, right, to the to the, right to the sanitarium. <laughs> where they can dry out from their, their drinking. Literally dry out, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, he then unhitches Hi-Hat and begins to ride him in the race. Hi-Hat then, this is the weird part of the movie to me. This so, is the weird part. Well, this is, this <laughs> okay. is, okay, sorry. This is a weird part of the movie to me. We established the night before that Hi-Hat is a natural steeplechase horse. Great. The next day, He's not a natural steeplechase horse. He's only a natural steeplechase horse if Morgan's voice is driving him on, or a picture, ah. but, or a photograph, which we did not establish that the photograph did anything for him. So 
why a horse would be reacting to a photograph. It would be meaningless to a horse. A horse right. would not recognize what that is. Yeah. Where do you get the photograph as well of, of him? <clears throat> He's a fan. <laughs> he sent off for an autographed picture, which Morgan happily mailed to him. Sure. So then uh, <laughs> Steffi shows the picture of, of Morgan just to uh, to to uh, Hi-Hat, and Hi-Hat, of course, reacts and runs faster. And then it looks, I know we're supposed to think that Steffi has somehow dropped the picture, but it just looks like he carelessly tosses it aside. <laughs> I won't be needing this anymore. Throw. So then uh, the others have to resort to hiding a microphone near Morgan and then appearing peekaboo. So he yells at them and then the horse goes faster. This is done approximately 400 times yeah. at the end of the film. Yeah. It kind of runs out of steam around the I did, I did like when time. they attached it to the dog. I like that a bit. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, they could have done that earlier I and mean, we wouldn't need it over and over again. Or they could have done it where like, uh, can you do his voice to Groucho? And Groucho would go, yes. Oh, that's a good idea. You know, then it's interesting. Yeah. And then uh, Morgan would go, that's not me. And uh, and then r- wrestle away from Groucho. And then he's yelling into the microphone himself. And then Hi-Hat runs even faster. Yeah, yeah. It's just weird when someone says something to someone like a character like Groucho who seems to be able to do anything. Like, hey, can you juggle? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What do you mean? Just do it. Yeah. Do his voice. This seems like a basic thing. Yeah. All right, fine. Uh Morgan's jockey cheats by by hitting Stuffy with his riding crop and other right. maneuvers. But are probably pretty. And common the bad guy saying, "I hope they don't. I hope the not refs, but whatever don't don't see that." Yeah, I hope the judges don't see. Which is a weird aside. Like, why do we need that? Yeah. Also, it's a full it's a full crowd. Yeah. I think people can see this. Yeah, yeah. Near the end of the race, their battling causes them both to fall off their horses into a muddy water jump. Okay. Both jockeys remount and continue the race, but Morgan's rider beats High Hat by a nose. Oh, everything's bad. It's all dark. The clouds are really darker now. All seems lost until Morgan comes to congratulate his jockey. His horse goes wild at the sound of his voice, and Stuffy realizes that he and the other jockey had switched mounts during the muddy fall at the water jump. A quick, quick scrape of the muck reveals Hi-Hat's number seven. Now, despite, Hack, uh, <laughs> despite Hackenbush working as a fraudulent doctor in a sanitarium with real patients, Hi-Hat's victory at the track makes everything A-OK. <laughs> don't worry. You f- fraud operating on humans? It's okay. Don't worry. This horse won a race, everyone. The Marx Brothers are joined by the black people from the barn scene for a triumphant march towards the camera while reprising All God's Chill and Got Rhythm. Grocher reprises... Without, a song that wasn't, without, uh, wasn't used in the movie, a message from the man in the moon. The original versions of the song was cut out, was cut out, as I said earlier. And he proposes to Mrs. Upjohn in a really sucky way. And the final shot has Gil singing, tomorrow is another day. And you want to just turn off the movie early. Yeah. It's tomorrow's another day with more problems because you've made, you've made some money, but clearly you don't know how to run a sanitarium. Yes. And uh, the same problems that you had before yep. will continue. Yes. Because uh, you only have one patient who seems to be able to pay, yep. and she's now married the doctor, who I assume is not still scamming That's her. That's right. Well, we don't see the at the the next part of the movie where Harpo invents a, a cloth that helps to uh, blot up like spills and stuff like that. The sanitarium napkin. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, let's keep talking so people just go past that. I, I was I was I was reading up on this, and they mentioned that they had a scene yes. that they filmed that they didn't use. Now you tell me if you think this was real or not. Mm-hmm. It was a scene where uh, Chico's at the gate uh, placing a bet, but on the uh, on, a, on a different horse, and Groucho goes up to him and says, "No, you've read the script. The, uh, this horse wins at the end." It's like I know, but the odds. Oh, they're, not, know, they're not filming a scene. Oh, it has actually happened during the movie. The movie. Grocho placed a bet with with a, with a, one of the with like a crew member 
on a horse that that he knew he wasn't going to wasn't going to win. And someone oh. said, "This horse isn't going to win the race." He goes, "I know, but the odds are one in 15. Oh, okay, that's pretty good. I heard it was a Chico thing. Okay. Oh no, it was Chico. Sorry, it was Chico who did okay. it. But, All right, very good. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't like part of the movie. It was just like just a, during oh, the, during the filming. Right, very yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Good on good on Chico on that. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Uh, he, was a, he was a he was a gambler. He they push it. they push real hard for the happy ending there. Yeah. My gosh, they push uh, yeah. so hard. Yeah. You and know, and it, you can kind of accept it in, in Night of the Opera. It still seems ridiculous to me that people can disrupt a, a performance, have the police called in, but because two of the starlets are necessary for the for the the opera, all is forgiven. That's right. Hey, Don't, officers, yeah. I know all this happened, but yeah. I'll vouch for them. Yeah. Well, all right. Guy who works at the opera. <laughs> He's our boss, technically, right? Guy who works at the opera outranks the commissioner, commissioner of police. All right, that sounds good. That's right. Opera manager, commissioner of the police, right? Mayor. Yeah, it's a very odd. Uh, and the guy, in that, yeah, in that like okay. And so, who? Sorry, what's the name of the bad guy again? Morgan. Mor- Morgan. Yeah. Morgan. Yeah. Morgan. Aside from, oh, yeah. Is there Any, kind of, anything he does? You gotta fall in the mud. Yeah. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, something's gotta happen. Yeah. yeah. You gotta yeah. get kicked by the horse. That would have been best if he had been behind, behind, um, what he thinks is his own horse. Yeah. And. Yes! Yes. And then he gets kicked yes! in the pants, That's... not in the face or whatever, but no! just, just a light kick that, you know, sends him flying in a cartoon way. Into the mud. You know, getting kicked by a horse is actually not really funny, but. Yeah. You can make it funny in and the And then movie. he comes out, he's covered in mud, yeah, and uh, yeah, one of the yeah. uh, people goes, oh, that's offensive, doing a minstrel thing. And it's like, you were fine <laughs> with them. And I was like, yeah, but they had more context. <laughs> this just seems like a this cheap. This is rank hypocrisy. This, this is a cheap bit. I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. If a guy, if a guy physically assaults a comedy character, they need to be physically assaulted comedically later. Yeah, they need to have there must be a comeuppance. There's some basics yeah. here that never get covered. There's no comeuppance for Whitmore, who's yeah. a traitor. There's no comeuppance for Morgan, who is a cheat. Yeah. There's, it's all, uh, it's, yeah. And you need a thing like if Groucho is uh, saying like, you know, you know, uh, will you marry me? And you need something to undercut at the end. You know, we'll set a date like, but you know, you're, he's never going to marry her. It's yeah, something, yeah. something like that. Or it's just, you know, uh, bec- because well, they could have had they could have had Flo return to this moment and have her standing off to the side, and him just moving you know, after proposing, just turning away from her and going following following Flo. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just like we just see his character is so changeable and yeah. whatever, just like the dance sequence kind of thing, something like that, something that undercuts it. Yeah, or you need yeah. Flo to do something to try to sabotage the horse race or something. That would have been good. And then you at know, least be with Morgan at the end of the movie. Like in the box or whatever, yeah. and also get some comeuppance with with Whitmore. Something happens, maybe the, the the water wagon goes out of control and sprays them in the crowd or whatever. Yeah, it's strange when you say like how much. Well, maybe it's not, but when you say how much rewriting was done. Yeah, uh, it feels like this is the kind of stuff you, you you pick up on the rewriting and just go, oh, we set this up and didn't pay this off. Oh, you know, this character has the knowledge mm-hmm. that would make again. It's it's just so. But this feels like a film where he's a horse doctor who never does any doctoring of horses when he when we end up at a horse. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It feels like a film with so many hands in the in the in the in the pudding that you know, and the, and it's not the writers whose hands are in the right. pudding. They have no control over this. They're just being told to do stuff, mm-hmm. and so you know, people are telling this, people are saying this, people are saying that, and so, like I said. When the, while the movie was being filmed, they were still rewriting scenes that had already been shot. Right. So they were going back and doing reshoots of stuff. Uh, and that makes no sense because there's nothing in this movie where it feels like they did any linking or any kind yeah, of explanation. Yeah. So, it's, sorry, maybe I'm missing it. Is there a scene where Margaret Dumont finds out that this is a horse doctor? No. Here's, again, it's so, to me, all right. All Wait, you, does he admit it to her at the end? I'm really, uh, da 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 da. It's possible. 
It's possible. In that in that walk as they're walking, does he? If so, I dislike it even more because you don't just blow blow that information yeah, yeah. that way. What you need is a scene where you see him giving uh, a pill to a horse. She sees it. And it's like, hey, that's the same pill you gave me. And yeah. either that like spills the beans, or yeah, now you're healthy as a horse, or whatever the heck the joke is. Yeah, yeah. Something. There's got to be like a. Oh, reveal, but, you know, and she's so upset, but like, but marry me. And marry me anyway. It's like, oh, I will. It's like, that's all she needed was love. Love is, love is the real cure. It's fine. She'll be fine. Something. It's just such a, it's a mess. No, no, you know what should have happened is that as they're walking along and he pr- proposes to her, she says, um, now, now you're not only the, now you're my husband and the doctor and the doctor are the only doctor I'll ever need. And then she laughs, but then it turns into a horse, horse neigh. Yes, that's also a good joke. Okay, and and now here's a bad ending. Okay, so it's all the everyone's cheering or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then all uh, God's children, God rhythm. Yeah, and then like, uh, and then Harpo looks around, and then he flies off into the sky, and then uh, people are like, "What?" And one of the people goes like, "We told you, that's the angel Gabriel." <laughs> I don't know how many times I told we were, you that. Right. Weren't you listening at all? Yeah. You didn't see his wings? Yeah, it's it's Gabriel. Yeah, there you go. And he flies off. Who, by the way, plays a trumpet, not a tin flute. Yeah, this is, that's a, also... Yeah. Peep, 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 peep. Yeah, it's kind of a low-rent Gabriel to be playing a tin flute. <laughs> it's a very a It's very a catchy scene. song, though. What you going to do? And there's some music mm, numbers. So, listen, there was, uh, I, uh, there was entertainment. I do not regret watching it. Uh, if I watched it again, I would watch it with a fast forward on certain scenes. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, but 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 yeah, it was you know it was uh, it was it was was what it was. I'm sorry, it was your least favorite of the Marx Brothers movies so far. Yeah, I'm not sure what I gave the coconuts. Um, so I might have to bump the coconuts. How up. many coconuts out of uh, ten did you give? The I'm not, I think I might have given it six, which is pretty low. Maybe seven though. I must. Have, I'm pretty sure. It's, no, I'm going to say I said seven. Okay. Seven coconuts because I just feel like that movie is just. You know, it's not quite there yet, you know, but... Uh, it's like a film play. I'm going to give uh, Day of the Races six horseshoes out of ten. So it's a... Oh, so it's not quite a nay for you. No, no, no. It's never a nay because there's still good stuff in it. It's right. just that overall I feel like this movie really Not enough fell apart. around is what you're saying. Really, you're right. And also, shut up. Hey! <laughs> Uh, what do you guys think? I made it. And by guys, bridal. I mean you, oh, gentle yes. listeners. Uh, you always, uh, so far at least, have been uh, so good at like uh, letting us know things that we missed out on or extra trivia yeah, or, uh, or whatnot. And we, we love hearing that from you. Uh, so here's how you contact us. We do another podcast called Sneaky Dragon, which is just kind of a freeform uh, podcast talking about our lives and such. Uh, so you will notice uh, the word Sneaky Dragon appears in a lot of the ways you contact us. So if you want to post on our message board, uh, go to SneakyDragon.com and directly underneath the episode you can post. If you want to email us, we're at SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com, SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. We're also on Twitter at Sneaky underscore Dragon, and we're on Tumblr, SneakyDragon.tumblr.com. Uh, any of those is a good way to contact us. Most people seem to via the, uh, the, the webpage or the email. But hey, you, you be you. Yeah. Yes, we love hearing from you. And unfortunately, there are no new reviews of, uh, full marks on iTunes. So there's no names to announce this week. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I yeah, checked last if you, night. If you would like to, uh, if you'd like to review our show on iTunes, it helps people to find us. Uh, and, uh, thank you for those of you who have, uh, reviewed the show. Yes. It's really So awesome. far. Uh, we do appreciate it, and uh, Dave, uh, not in a non-bribey way, will will say your name out loud if you yeah. review uh, review us. 
Uh, is there it's, is that an ethical it's, quandary? It's Who a, knows? It's the least I can do for you, validating my ego. That's right. Is Dave a brilliant con man, as as Chico is in this, <laughs> or uh, uh, just a free and con man, as Chico is in previous free foreman? So, what is the next film we'll, we'll be looking at, and that uh, people should should watch? The next movie is going to be Room Service. Very good. So, uh, try the to Marx find Brothers. that. I'll try to find it. We'll all try to find it. Dave has it. I have it. Uh, and uh, we will, if you're if you're going in real time, we will see you in two weeks. And if you're going in your own pace, we'll see you whenever you decide. Uh, I've been Ian. And I've been David. This has been Full Marks. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thanks, everyone. Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. Did someone call you what, what? Hooray, hooray, hooray. Hooray.